Texas, celebrating 40 years of providing second life to books, music, and gaming. People can trade and upgrade many types of entertainment. More at McKayUsedBooks.com. Happy Valentine's Day this week, everybody. WAMU has uh, got a special love for you and hopefully you for us. Well, that's it. That's all for me. Thanks for your time this time. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey James. So long. This is WAMU Washington. In HD at 88.5 and at WAMU.org. Big broadcast up next at 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and as a public service, we want to remind you about the candy, flowers, and other gifts that are due the day after tomorrow on Valentine's Day. Our Miss Brooks hasn't forgotten, as you'll hear, and Detective George Valentine is on hand with an episode of Let George Do It. We've got a Destination Freedom episode that features a talking heart, plus Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and another salute to Black History Month from the documentary series Black Radio, Telling It Like It Was. Let your heart be filled with love, and you can start by forgetting any cares and worries left over from last week, putting aside your concerns about the one just getting started, and at least for a few hours, simply let your imagination take over here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. You know all those exciting, exotic locales America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator manages to visit... Well, forget him, at least for the next two weeks. He's off to, well, you're about to hear. In the first three installments of the five-part Henderson Matter, they were broadcast November 28th, 29th, and 30th, 1955, by CBS as part of the series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Tim Connors, John Boy. Congratulate me. Congratulations, Tim. What for? I just had another boy. Seven pounds, 12 ounces. Hey, you like cigars? Sure. Well, come on down and pick one up. Oh, maybe you better pack a suitcase, too. I got one for you out in Culver, Montana. Where is that? I just told you. Out in Montana somewhere. We have a debt policy holder there named Henderson. Henderson, huh? Yeah. Now, we don't know if he was murdered, committed suicide, or had an accident. Well, what does it look like? All three. Okay, Tim. Be there in an hour. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Henderson matter, whatever it's going to be. Expense account item one, dollar and a quarter for a detailed map. 
I had an idea that Culver, Montana was a place that only Rand McDally might know about. They did. I found it tucked up in the high northern corner of the state near Great Falls. Hey, where's your bag? Home. I told you to pack it. Now look, Give me a cigar, Tim. Tell me about the new boy in the new case. Okay, have a chair. There you are. I wouldn't smoke it if I were you. Terrible. Cost me two bucks a box. Hey, you know something? I'm thinking of naming the new boy Johnny. Oh, tough case, huh? Yeah. Hmm? Look, look. We're in the same sweet old spot, Johnny. Same old problem. One of our policyholders is dead, and for looking into the circumstances of his death, the insurance company is no longer a friend of the widow and orphan, but a big, bad monster trying to weasel out of a just claim. All claims are just claims, or are they? Well, of course they are. No one ever tried to pull a fast one on an insurance company. Well, the world's full of nice, honest, straight-playing people. Ah, uh-huh. now tell me about getting sandbagged in a poker game. Look, I want to get this out of the way and get back over to the hospital and see my wife. Now, John, this claim came into the insurance office yesterday afternoon, airmail special. The insurance company turned it over to me today. What company? Western. The policy's worth $25,000 face value, double indemnity if death was by accident. No payment for suicide. Uh Uh-huh. You say the man's name was Henderson? Yeah, it says here, George Walter Henderson, Montana rancher. Last Thursday, he fell four stories out of a hotel window in Culver and died instantly. At least that's what we have in this report here. Somebody could have shoved him, or he could have taken the leap. Now, we have to know for certain. What's on the claim report? Accidental. There was no inquest, no police investigation, and that's not good enough for us. Uh Uh-huh. This Henderson prominent? Well, he was big enough, Johnny. Cattleman, rancher. He was also a major stockholder and the only newspaper in Culver, so I doubt if his paper suggests suicide or anything else. Do you? I don't know, Tim. I never met the editor. Well, meet him if you like. Talk to him. Talk to anybody in Culver. Find out what was what. This is a lousy cigar. Johnny, you know how to handle these things. We have to have more information than this. Have you tried to do anything on it at all? Yeah, I phoned the sheriff's office long distance to talk to a man named Holton, Eve Holton. He said he'd be happy to cooperate. Uh, what else? I phoned the beneficiary to get some information. Name's Pauline Henderson, his widow. Is she going to cooperate, too? I don't think so, pal. Huh? She hung up on me. Expense account item two, $185.65. Airfare, Hartford, Connecticut to Great Falls, Montana. The nearest point I could make to Culver by air. Item three, three bucks. I took the train to Culver. Sometimes when I'm having nightmares, I dream about the smelter stack standing up against the cadaverous hills that lie to the south of town. Everything, including the three or four feet of snow covered with a uniform dinginess, made Culver an ugly little town set in an ugly notch between two ugly mountains. The only hotel in town was the Butte. It happened to be four stories high. It also happened to be the place where George Henderson had met his death. Okay, just a minute. Mr. Dollar? Yeah. I'm Eve Holton, sheriff here. Huh? You're from the insurance people, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Been expecting that you'd be in sooner or later. Well, I'm glad to meet you, Mr. Holton. Call me Eve, son. Everybody does. And, hey, got a drink on you? And no, I haven't. Well, I got one on me. Nice and chilly, too. (laughs) Well, I'll see if there's some glasses around here, Sheriff. You didn't waste any time looking me up. No, I guess I didn't, son. Thought it'd save a little time this way. Knew you'd be looking me up sooner or later. Really thought we ought to have this drink together. Private. May not have any more together while you're here. 
health and happiness, boy. Uh, same to you. Now, this drink we're having, this is in your room, and I'm just a fellow welcoming you to Culver. In my office or on that street out there, I'm a sheriff, and I'm going to be real official. All right, go on. I want you to notice I'm not asking any questions of you, son. I'm just answering anything that you might want to ask me right now. All right. You're going to have to plow ahead yourself on this one pretty much alone. And let me tell you what kind of plowing you got in store for you. Excuse me. Now, first off, this is a little burg like you ain't used to. We got 3,500, 4,000 people living here. Some of them working at mine you've seen on your way into town. Others hire out to work on the ranches around here. Some in business. Uh-huh. Very tight little place. We hardly ever fool around with anybody else. Sure. Now, you're here because your insurance company don't like to pay off on a policy without knowing whys and wherefores. They don't like the word accident without knowing some of the details. No, they don't. There's a lot of people here, most people, who don't care about those details. As a matter of fact, son, they'd all just as soon put old George Henderson down on the ground and say it was an accident and let it go with that. Well, maybe it was, Sheriff. I don't know. But I'm going to find out. Yeah, well, now, let me go on. Those people who don't like the details don't like detail getters. You understand? Uh, yeah. Scare you any? Not yet. <laughs> You'll do all right, son. So, maybe you'd kind of like to get your coat on and come to your funeral with me. Starts at three. Anderson's? Yeah. Give you a chance to look around, get the lay of the land. Okay, good idea. I wondered what kind of bull workers insurance companies turned out. I like you, Dollar. You're all right. You ain't bothering with any questions till you got some worthwhile asking. You tired? A little. Well, this won't take too long. A half hour later, I was standing beside Sheriff Eve Holton on a flat-top hillside that served as a cemetery. The snow was white and gleaming under the winter sun of the mid-afternoon skies, the air cold and crisp. Dear our Heavenly Father, who knoweth all things, we commit the body of our beloved to thy eternal care. Thy will be done. Trusting ever in thy mercy, we invoke the consolation of thy sheltering wing. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Ensure and certain hope of resurrection into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Oh, that's that. Yeah. Poor George. Eve. Hmm? Which one is Mrs. Henderson? Her. That's Pauline Henderson? Yeah, that's her. Well, she can't be more than 25. 26, to be exact, Dollar. I went to her birthday party two months ago. Well, how old was George Henderson? 59. Went to his party, too. Yeah. Pretty thing, hmm? Very. Any other family? Nope. No other wife, huh? Nope. Want to meet her? No, not right now. Mm-hmm. Well, suit yourself. Kind of thought you might start thinking when you got a look at her. Hmm? Well, just keep on the way you're doing. You're doing fine. When there's something you got to know, you'll find out. Well, Eve, I already know one thing. Yeah? What's that? I'm going to ask for a coroner's inquest. Just from seeing her? Just from seeing her. Mm-hmm. You're a 
sly one, Johnny. Truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure and join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roy Rowan speaking. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Keith Holden. How are you this morning? Oh, pretty good, Sheriff. How about yourself? Oh, I'm fine, Dandy. You were over at the city hall this morning, huh? Yeah, that's right. I requested the coroner to conduct an inquest into the death of George Henderson. Yeah, I know. The coroner left it up to me. Huh? Yeah, came into my office and asked me if I had any reason to conduct an inquest into the death of George Henderson. I told him I didn't have any reason, but I'd do it if I was ordered to. Well, what happens now? Well, somebody will have to decide whether there's going to be an inquest or not. Who? Mayor, I guess. I don't know. Anyhow, you stirred up some action, and you'll be getting it. Yeah, where? Just stay where you are, son. My guess is it'll come right to you. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Henderson matter. The death of George Henderson of Culver, Montana, where I am today. A casual certification announced that death is accidental, having been received by a fall from a hotel window. No one in Culver seemed to be too worried about any of the details. But details are my job. That's why I requested the coroner's office to conduct an inquest. I took Sheriff Holton's suggestion and waited to see what my request flushed up in the dingy-colored mountains of Culver. An hour later, my first bird winged up to my hotel room. He was a tall, gray-haired man in a Stetson, earmuffs, and the western version of a Chesterfield. His honor, Mayor Newton. Mr. Dollar... I want to talk to you about this request you made for an inquest into George Henderson's death. Yes, sir, Mr. Mayor. You are aware, of course, that George's death, and he was one of my beloved and personal friends for many, many years, was a great blow to the entire community. No, I didn't know that, Mayor Newton. Huh? Only the smallest part of the community were at his funeral yesterday afternoon. His widow and, I'd say, not more than half a dozen other people. Uh. <clears throat> Well, I understand that your insurance company is not quite satisfied with the certification. Is that correct? Uh, more or less. What would they need to be satisfied, sir? An exact knowledge of how Mr. Henderson fell out that hotel window. I would rather no inquest were held into Mr. Henderson's death. Why? Why, sir, George Henderson is dead and buried. It should remain that way. 
If an inquest were to be held, it would only prove that George fell out of a window. I beg you to consider that, Mr. Dollar. You seem very certain that an investigation would prove that death was accidental. It was accidental. George fell out the window. Well, now, I can't just tell that to my insurance company, can I? Uh, We are a small community with a rudimentary police force, not equipped in any way for an exhaustive investigation, nor for the financial burden of such an investigation. I strongly urge you to reconsider this request for a coroner's inquest. You do? I do indeed. His untimely death was an unfortunate occurrence outside the pale of any of our poor abilities to foresee. A terrible, terrible accident. I'd like proof of that. Proof? An inquest, Mr. Mayor. An inquest. All right. My interview with Mayor Newton had convinced me that I'd get no real help from him in the Henderson matter. Quite the contrary. Expense account item three, 20 cents, coffee. Myself and Sheriff E. Holton. Well, you got it. Huh? At the direction of Mr. Jackson. That's our coroner. He deputized me temporarily to conduct an inquest. It's going to take place tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, City Hall. Tomorrow, Sheriff? Room 207. Well, Eve, you won't have time to do anything. No, I guess I won't. Not much, anyhow. Ah, oh, brother. The mayor pitched me pretty hard for not having the inquest. Knew he would. Any idea why? Nope. You think somebody asked him to stop it? Yeah. Who? Don't know, Johnny. Honest. The next morning, I struggled my way against a belligerent north wind to City Hall and the inquest, if you could call it that. I sat in the back of the room and listened while a Dr. Horace Nam assured the six-man jury that George Henderson was quite dead when he was called out of his office and examined him on the street. Dr. Nam reckoned George had died from a broken neck. An ancient bellhop, a desk clerk, and a chambermaid gave their versions of what had happened the day Henderson fell out the window. Now, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help you, God. I do, Sheriff. I'm the acting coroner today, Miss Cubley. Sit down. Now, when did you see Mr. Henderson last? Last Thursday morning. Where was this, Miss Cubley? At the Butte Hotel. Mm -hmm. You know what time of the morning it was? About ten o'clock. I went in to make his bed and straighten up his room. I see. I made his bed while he worked on some papers there, and then I left. Did you see him after that? No, sir. You didn't see him come downstairs for breakfast or anything? No, sir. Do you know if anybody went up to see him? I believe I saw Mrs. Henderson in the lobby after that. Do you see Mrs. Henderson in this room? Yes, sir. I believe that's Mrs. Henderson over there. No, that's Mrs. Henderson. Now, do you know if Mrs. Henderson visited Mr. Henderson in his room? No, sir, I don't know that. Miss Cubley, did you happen to notice if anyone else went up to Mr. Henderson's room that morning? No, sir. It went on all morning long. Sheriff Holton, acting in the coroner's position, questioned person after person. All had more or less the same vague knowledge concerning George Henderson's death. I was most interested in Pauline Henderson's testimony. Now then, Mrs. Henderson, when did you last see your husband? Thursday. I went to see him about noon, maybe a little before. Where did you see him, Miss Henderson? At the Butte Hotel, in his room there. The same room he occupied prior to his death? Of course. The same room from which he fell? Yes. Were you alone when you went to see him, Mrs. Henderson? 
Yes. I must have left before 12.30. I had an appointment at the dentist. Uh, that was the last time you saw your husband alive? Yes. I was still in the dentist's chair when they told me he'd fallen out the window. What, uh, what did you and your husband talk about, Mrs. Henderson? Must I answer that? Well, we're trying to determine something here. I'd appreciate it. George and I discussed our divorce. Could you tell us about that? George and I decided to part about a month ago. He moved out of the house and moved into the hotel. Mm-hmm. Outside of the divorce, were you on good terms? Oh, yes, we've always been on good terms. Mrs. Henderson, do you think there's a chance that he might have thrown himself out that window? Mrs. Mrs. Henderson, do you think he might have thrown himself out that window? No, at least not over us, if that's what you mean. As far as you knew, was your husband in good health? Yes, he was. You happen to know when he was examined last? Oh, a month or so ago. He was in perfect health. Uh, one more thing. Did Mr. Henderson drink? Yes. Did he drink that morning with you? I think he had a couple of drinks. Yes, yes, he had a drink or two while we were talking. He could have stumbled at that window. The clothes were New York, the perfume Paris, the jewelry Tiffany's. The look you might expect it on the Riviera, where everybody tries to act bored with too many good things in life. Her dress, blank for the occasion of death, was cut too well and too carefully for her to pass as a grieving widow. She answered the questions without hesitation or emotion. Fifteen minutes later, the jury brought in the expected verdict. Therefore, it is the opinion of this jury that the said deceased George Walter Henderson came to his death as a result of injuries incurred in a fall from the fourth floor of the Butte Hotel at or about 12.45 p.m. on the 19th day of this month. No evidence to the contrary. It is deemed and declared that the manner of death was accidental. Adjourned. As far as Culver's people, its police, and its mayor were concerned. Yeah, the mayor. Well, Mr. Dollar, I hope you're satisfied. It was a pretty good inquest, Mayor Newton. I trust the official verdict of the jury will answer any questions your insurance company might have had on their minds and clear this whole matter up. Hmm? I'll forward it to them and tell them the circumstances under which the inquest was conducted, Mr. Mayor. Satisfactory, I trust. No. But it served a purpose. Now that everybody thinks it was an accident, everybody will breathe easier. Certainly. Yeah. If everybody's relaxing like that, somebody's going to get careless. See you, Mr. Mayor. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure and join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Eve Holden, son. Hi, Sheriff. You put in a call for me, did you? Yes, I'm ready to go to work. Now that the inquest's been held and George Henderson's death is officially an accident, I might be able to move around your little town a little easier. What can I do for you? Help me to move around. Ah, 
case is closed, as far as I'm concerned. Eve, what's the matter with you? That inquest was a farce. For all I know, Henderson could have been pushed out of that hotel window. The attitude of different people in this town makes that oh, whole thing... Hold on now, son. Hold on. I meant to say it's closed as far as my office is concerned. Personally, I think it needs investigating. We can help each other, maybe, you and me. Can I come over? Oh, I better come there. You know how folks are around here. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar, location Culver, Montana, to Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Henderson matter. The question, accident, suicide, or murder? Expense account item four, $3.48. One day later to Tim Connors' office in Hartford explaining the situation in Culver. I'll, uh, I'll read back to you, Mr. Dollar. Mr. Tim Connors, Paramount Insurance Adjusters, Hartford, Connecticut. Coroner's inquest into death of George Henderson, policy number EMP-196667, found death to be accidental. In my opinion, the inquest was not thorough. Have decided to stay on in Culver and conduct my own investigation. If any change, please advise via Western Union, Butte Hotel, Culver. Am forwarding copy of coroner's verdict this date. Best regards, Dollar. Correct? Okay. Oh, uh, Mr. Dollar. Mm-hmm. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, sure. Expense account item five, 68 cents, postage. I mailed a copy of the coroner's verdict to Hartford Airmail Special. After that, I went back to my hotel to wait for the sheriff, Eve Holton. Come on in, Eve. I... Oh. Hello. Hello. Uh, Mr. Dollar, my name's Porter. I'm the manager of this hotel. Oh, well, come in, Mr. Porter. I, I can't right now. I've got some other things to attend to. Well, anything I can do for you, Mr. Porter? I- I'm going to have to ask you for your room, Mr. Dollar. Oh, When? Uh, t- today. Any particular reason? We're all filled up. Uh, the, the room's been reserved for six weeks. By whom? What? Who reserved it? Why, uh, a man from Bozeman. It's a sort of convention. Sort of convention. What kind of convention is that, Mr. Porter? Look, Mr. Dollar, you'll have to leave this room today. The man's coming in tonight. Uh-huh. And there's no other hotel in town. That's the way it is, Mr. Dollar. No other place to stay. No. So I have to pack my bags and get out of town, is that it? I must have the room, Mr. Dollar. Who asked you to say you wanted the room, Mr. Porter? Who asked you to come here and kick me out? Why, no one, I... Well, you go back to no one, Mr. Porter, and you tell no one that I'm staying right here in this room here in Culver until I finish what I have to do here. You tell that to no one, will you? Mr. Dollar, I'd I'd hate to call the police. Go ahead, Mr. Porter. Be sure and tell them about the sort of convention you're having and how all the rooms are sold out. Tell him about Mr. No-One and tell him I called your bluff. Anything else, Mr. Porter? I was at the stage where I was beginning to take notes for myself. Note one. 
the mayor didn't want to have an inquest into the death of George Henderson. Note two, when they did have an inquest, they didn't want to really find out anything. Note three, Mr. Hotel Manager wanted me to keep on not finding out anything by getting me out of town. I explained all of this to Eve Holton when he showed up a half an hour later. Well, kind of tight, isn't it? I don't know what that means, Sheriff, but it's pretty stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's stupid, son, but it could be effective. Now, I'll tell you what. If Porter calls the police, I'm the police. So don't worry about that. I'll hem him and haw him. All right, thanks. Now then, uh, tell me how much your insurance company's stuck for. $50,000 if Henderson's death goes by as an accident. The good book says that's what it was. I know, I know. There's a chance, too, we had a heart failure and fell out of that window. No, sure. Always a chance. We might have to dig him up and find out, Sheriff. Oop, hold on. Autopsies and digging people up is one thing you'd have a hard time doing around here. I might insist on it. I don't know. Well, let that go for now. Say, tell me about Mrs. Henderson. Where's she from? Here. Right here in Culver. Now, she didn't get that mink coat and those diamonds she was wearing at the inquest in Culver. More important, she didn't get that continental look here either. So what's the story? Well, her name was Pauline Underwood before she married George. Born and raised right here in Culver. Of course, she went to school in the East, and she's been in Europe a couple of times, but most of her life's been right here. She is a mighty pretty widow. And a mighty rich one, too. Henderson had it. I know. This divorce she talked about at the inquest yesterday. Well, everybody in town knew they weren't getting along, never did get along. How could they? Pauline's 26 and George is 59. He could have been her father. As a matter of fact, he almost was. Well, tell me about that. You got a drink? Hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, George raised Pauline from the time she was 14. He paid for all her schooling and growing up. She didn't have any folks after her old man died. George was pretty good to her. He sure was. <laughs> was he a friend of her parents? Well, Tom Underwood worked out at the ranch for George. When he died, there was Pauline standing there. Oh, yeah. Oh, thanks. And she eventually married him and his money, huh? Well, I I wouldn't put it that way exactly. I think she liked him. Now, I've gone over what you're thinking, son. Those two were talking about divorce for some time. The papers had been drawn up for a settlement. She'd have got a lot of alimony and so on. Oh, Pauline had no call to push him out that window or have him pushed out. At least not for money. All right. Suppose he didn't want a divorce. Suppose he loved her and she came to the hotel room that morning and he pleaded with her to try all over again. Suppose she said no. Suppose she said no in a great big cold way. And George Henderson sat there and thought about it after she left. And he got sick all over and he walked over to that window and... Suicide? What do you think? You know him. Yeah, he wasn't a suicide type. So... Oh, nobody's the suicide type until they come to the end of the line, Eve. Then it's too late to interview them and ask them how they got there. Everybody seems to think it was an accident, so I'm just throwing words around. Well, you have a right to do that if you aren't satisfied, son. Hey, getting back to this hotel again. Who might want me to get out of town and not ask any questions? Anybody. Well, who? No idea. But it's somebody who has some feelings in this. Hey, who owns this hotel, Eve? Noah Baxter. Who's Noah Baxter? Rancher. Got a place about 15 miles from here. Pretty big man. Uh-huh. Friend of Henderson's? Yeah. Hmm... Now, let me put that question a little different. Baxter, a friend of Mrs. Henderson's. I don't know. Can you find out? I can try. Well, find out about him and any other friends, Eve. 
Friends that might be younger, that might have gone to Europe or a school in the East. Yeah? Sure. What are you thinking now, son? Well, now, if I were Mrs. Henderson and my husband fell out of a window in this hotel and killed himself, I'd hire a lawyer and I'd sue the hotel for damages. If the insurance company didn't pay off my claim, I'd hire a lawyer and insist that they pay that claim. I'd do those things right away, Sheriff, especially if I thought it was all legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. Two hours later, I received a wire from Tim Connors. He requested me to look up a man named Thurber, an insurance broker living in Great Falls. Expense account item six, $4.92, tank of gas. I borrowed Sheriff Holton's car and drove the 80-odd miles to Great Falls that afternoon. Mr. Thurber bought lunch. My Lord, I hope there isn't anything to all this, Mr. Dollar. I just hope there isn't. George Henderson. Yeah, well, there isn't anything to anything yet, Mr. Thurber. I'm still trying to find out the facts. Oh, I knew you were over in Culver. I tried to call you there a couple of times. You were out both times. Finally, I put in a call to the home office in Hartford. I talked to this man, Connors, with the adjustment agency. Yeah. You see, Mr. Dollar, it's like this. I've been over in Jackson Hole for five days now hunting duck. We were way in, and I didn't hear about Henderson's death until I got back yesterday. Uh Uh-huh. Now, look, Mr. Dollar, I don't know what reflection this will have on your attitude toward this case... But two days before I left, Mr. Henderson telephoned me here in Great Falls. He said he wanted to change the beneficiary on his policy. Oh, in other words, he was going to cut his wife out, huh? Yes, I suppose so. I know they weren't getting along. There'd been talk of divorce. Yes, I guess so. Uh-huh. Did he name a new beneficiary? Yes, a schoolteacher in Culver named Matilda Knickerbocker. Everybody calls her Maddie. What was his connection with her? None that I know of. I think it was just a name for him to throw in until he could decide on another beneficiary why he didn't have... Wait a minute. Manny Knickerbocker. Just a school teacher. Everybody knows her. He was awful mad when he talked to me that day. I could tell it in his voice. Now, here's what might interest you just a little more. The day I left on my hunting trip, Mr. Henderson phoned me again. He said to never mind. Mrs. Henderson was still his beneficiary. Had you changed the policies yet? No. Are you sure it was Henderson who telephoned you? Well, yes, of... I, I think it was him. Do you remember when you got the call? Oh, somewhere around noon, a little later, I guess. He died between 12.30 and 1. And it must have been just before he fell out the window. He phoned you long distance from cover, huh? Yes, sir. Well, he was supposed to have been in the hotel all morning, so he had to phone from his room. Well, you can check that, can't you? <laughs> You'd be surprised how hard it is to check simple things like that around the Butte Hotel. Did you know Henderson very well, Mr. Thurber? He was a customer. I wrote a lot of insurance for him. Know his wife? Oh, yes. Well, tell me about them. Go ahead, Mr. Thurber. Uh, Now, look, accidents rarely have reason behind them. Suicides and murders always do. You don't think it was an accident? Well, let's say I've heard enough and seen enough to make it a draw so far. Go ahead, tell me about them. And I wish I was married to Mrs. Henderson. I mean, I wish she could see me. I think most any man who's ever met her hoped the same thing. Young men, old men, any kind. But she picked George. George was as tough and leathery as these mountains around us, exactly her opposite. But Pauline married him. He raised her. He was close to her all her adult life. Yes. But, Mr. Dollar, you know and I know she didn't have to marry him. She could have married anybody here in Culver or anybody in London or Paris. You see what I mean? And not quite. Well... I always had the idea that after she married him, she kept letting him know she could have had anybody else she wanted. Go ahead, Thurber. I think she married him for his money. 
I think she would have killed him for his money. There'll be another intriguing episode in our story of the Henderson matter tomorrow. Tomorrow, the whole affair becomes a town issue, and I become the town goat. Incidentally, let me take a moment to say thanks for the many kind letters you've sent. We appreciate them more than you know. And I only wish it were possible to answer them all personally. Again, thank you. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, it is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure and join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for the next exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking. A stubborn mystery in Montana... Maybe our man will get a break in the Henderson matter next week when we'll hear the two concluding episodes of that autumn 1955 case from yours truly, Johnny Dollar, here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. This coming Tuesday is Valentine's Day, and we're about to hear an episode of Our Miss Brooks that tells us last Tuesday was Valentine's Day. So it was when this program was broadcast on Sunday, February 19th, 1950, recounting Miss Brooks's romantic misfortunes of five days earlier. The show contains a reference to the Marshall Plan for the relief of post-war Europe, but mostly what we'll hear is Eve Arden's virtuoso comic timing throughout the show. She has the title role in the CBS series, Our Miss Brooks. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks, written by Al Lewis. Well, last Tuesday was Valentine's Day, and Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, looked forward to celebrating the occasion with Madison's biology teacher, Mr. Philip Boynton. Of course, Mr. Boynton isn't the most dashing person in the world, but what he lacks in ardent emotion, he more than makes up for by his passionate lack of interest in romance. (laughs) In fact, I have long suspected that if Mr. Boynton is ever hit by one of Dan Cupid's arrows, he'll remove it with a scalpel, cauterize the wound, and kick Cupid right in his quiver. I was discussing my reluctant dreamboat with my landlady last Tuesday at breakfast. I can't understand it, Connie. You're young, attractive, good company, charming. Thanks, Mrs. Davis. What are you doing after school? (laughs) Now, I'm serious. Somebody ought to take Mr. Boynton by the shoulders and give him a good shaking. I've tried that, but he's not a very good rumba dancer. I really shouldn't complain. We've been out on several dates in the past few weeks. I know that, dear. But where does he take you on these dates? To the zoo. (laughs) Exactly. And he took you there again yesterday, didn't he? How do you know? It's obvious. 
If it's that obvious, I'd better spray a little sweet air around. I knew you were at the zoo by the way you were dreaming last night. I got up to get some water, and as I passed your room, you were screaming like a wounded buffalo. Why, that's absurd, Mrs. Davis. I don't know what I'd be screaming about. It was only a flesh wound. Cheer up, dear. Here are some Valentine greetings that came for you this morning. Oh, thanks, Mrs. Davis. Let's see. This one's from Walter Denton. I recognize the handwriting. Well, an original poem. Read it out loud, Connie. All right. It says, My heart tick-ticks for you, my queen, with a steady watch beat of a new Longine. Dear Miss Brooks, I think you're keen. Won't you be my Valentine? <laughs> That's the feminine gender. <laughs> Listen to this, Mrs. Davis. This is from Stretch Snodgrass. Really? You mean he can write? Just about. <laughs> Here it is. When it comes to athletics, I get plenty of breaks. But when it comes to scholastics, I ain't no great shakes. <laughs> but since being in your English class, I don't sing the blues... Because nobody, nowhere, never taught me better than yous. <laughs> now, that's what I call a flattering valentine. Why don't you open this next one, Connie? Even I can recognize the sender of that. How? Mr. Boynton put his return address on the envelope. Naturally. When he invests in the stamp, he wants to be sure it gets somewhere. <laughs> well, listen to this. You're on my mind where'er I go, even when I'm alone at a picture show. But especially do I think of you when I happen to pass our local zoo. <laughs> there he goes again. How about you, Connie? Did you send Mr. Boynton a Valentine greeting? Yes, I mailed it yesterday. I didn't sign it, of course, but I think you'll know where it came from. What did you say in your greeting, Connie? It was an original bit of verse, Mrs. Davis, called, I must go where the wild goose goes. <laughs> Let's see if I can remember it. Oh, yes. To my valentine, Mr. Boynton. Though I must go where the wild goose goes, I also know what the wild goose knows. You'll think I'm jesting, I suppose, but no goose winds up in any zoo if he's really on his toes. <laughs> Why, Connie, that's beautiful. It's a wonderful idea for a song. Oh, I don't know. It's not very commercial. <laughs> but I've been thinking, Mrs. Davis, today being Valentine's Day, I'd like to get Mr. Boynton to take me to a restaurant for a change. Where does he usually take you to dinner? We split a hamburger in front of the lion's cage. <laughs> and I strongly suspect it's the same kind of meat the lion gets. <laughs> One thing I should be grateful for, I suppose. What's that? He doesn't serve it to me on the end of a stick. <laughs> I'm sure Mr. Boynton realizes that this is a holiday, Connie. He'll probably take you to a lovely restaurant. No, he won't, Mrs. Davis. He was just telling me yesterday how pressed he is for money. Seems he spent two dollars for a rare white mouse. He's experimenting with it at his home. At his home? Good heavens, Connie, how can Mr. Boynton live in a place with a white mouse? He's got twin beds. <laughs> but to get back to my date tonight, 
If I had a little extra money, I'd pretend I owed it to Mr. Boynton for some ancient debt and force it on him. Then he'd have to take me to a nice place to eat. That sounds like an excellent idea, Connie. Do you have any extra money? One dollar net. Now, if I had another dollar or two, I could... Mrs. Davis... I pass, Connie. <laughs> I barely have enough money to do today's shopping. I'd love to help you, dear, but... Oh, forget it, Mrs. Davis. I guess I'll have to forget it, too. Oh, that must be Walter Denton. He's driving me down to school this morning. Again? What's wrong with your car? Yes. Come in, Walter. <laughs> Fix some more toast and get some jelly out. That boy's one of the biggest eaters I've ever seen. He does do pretty well by the groceries. Valentine's Day greetings to the fairest of the fair. And I hope my little verses aren't getting in your hair. <laughs> your rhymes are most enchanting, but upon them let's not brood. Pull a chair up to the table and start swilling up your food. <laughs> I like about Valentine's Day, Miss Brooks. It puts everybody in such a good humor. But uh, before I join you for breakfast, there's something I'd like to take care of. What's that? Here's the buck I owe you. You lent it to me way back in September for a ticket to the ball game. I'll bet you don't even remember it. What do you want to bet? <laughs> uh, here, Miss Brooks, take it. And if you don't mind a rather personal suggestion, why don't you slip the dollar to Mr. Boynton? Mr. Boynton? Sure. So he'll take you to a restaurant for once instead of the zoo. What? Yeah. You could tell him you owe him the money for some ancient debt or something. Walter, how can you even think of such a thing, too? <laughs> that is, I know you mean well, but do you really think it'll work? Sure it'll work. Well, how about you? It won't leave you short, will it? Oh, not a bit. I got the money from Stretch Snodgrass last night. He's owed it to me since August. But Stretch doesn't make very much working in his father's pet shop. Maybe you shouldn't have taken it from him. Oh, he doesn't work at the pet shop anymore. His father fired him after the beef. Beef? Yeah. You know what a temper Stretch has. Well, last Monday, he bit an orangutan. <laughs> How hungry can you get? father just means to punish him, I guess, but meanwhile, Stretch wound up with a job after school that pays three times as much. Where is he working? In Turkey, heaven. How did he get in? I mean... <laughs> what in the world is Turkey, heaven? It's a restaurant, Miss Brooks. Of course, Stretch is only a busboy now, but who knows how far he can go if Mr. Turk takes a liking to him. Mr. Turk? The owner. Turk's Turkey, heaven, the place is called. If you tell me Mr. Turk's first name is Tom, I'll hit you with a drumstick. That's a swell spot, Miss Brooks. Uh, maybe Mr. Boynton will take you there some night. Not unless they sell turkey burgers and have a lion in the window. <laughs> Honestly, I'm so fed up with the zoo, I'd almost rather stay home tonight. Wait a minute. If I add this dollar you gave me to the one I've got already, we could... Come on, Walter, we've got to get down to school for the election. What election? I've just elected Mr. Boynton, the man most likely to blow me to dinner with my own money. <laughs> well, we got to school before it was time for my first class, and I headed directly for the biology lab to confirm my Valentine date with Mr. Boynton. His enthusiastic reply to my reminder almost swept me off my feet. I guess we could kill a couple of hours somewhere. 
frankly, Miss Brooks, if you're expecting any elaborate celebrations... Of course I'm not, Mr. Boynton. I just thought we could do something simple and inexpensive. You mean like go to the... No. <laughs> Look, before we make any plans, let me give you these two dollars I owe you. Two dollars? Yes, it was for a uh, uh, gas. I picked you up in my car one night last May, and when we ran out of gas, you bought ten gallons for me. I bought ten gallons? You had a beer with your dinner. Oh, let me think a minute. You say this happened one night last May? May, say, was that the evening we were coming from the zoo? We weren't coming from the casino in Monte Carlo. <laughs> Here, Mr. Boynton, take the two dollars. Oh, but I don't seem to remember this incident, Miss Brooks. Let me take a look at my little black book. Black book? Oh, yes. I enter all my expenditures in it during the fiscal year. That way, I know just how to budget myself from month to month. Now, let's see. 1949, August, July, June. Here we are, May. Hmm. May 1st, light bulb, 15 cents. <laughs> Collar button, 5 cents. May 2nd, 25 razor blades, 9 cents. <laughs> May 3rd, Mercurochrome and Bandages, 90 cents. Uh, May 4th, Stamp for Letter to Mother, 3 cents. Uh, month's Supply of Frog Food for Pet McDougal, 12 cents. That must have been the month Mac was on the diet. It's funny, I can't seem to find any record of that gas bill. Please, Mr. Boynton, it must have slipped your mind. Just take this. Well, let's look a little further, please. May... May 11th, ink, 10 cents, stamp for letter to mother, 3 cents. Uh, May 14th, shoelaces, 5 cents, stamp, 3 cents. Uh, May 16th, laundry, 75 cents. May 18th, stamp, 6 cents. Oh, that was Mother's Day. I wrote Mom airmail. She must have been thrilled two days later. <laughs> May 25th, pair of socks, 35 cents. Sports shirt, $3. That must have been the day you had the beer. <laughs> I don't remember that item at all. See, you just forgot to put the $2 down. Now, please take the money and let's Well, well thanks, Miss Brooks. It. It's certainly nice of you to remind me about it. You know, this $2 is going to make a big difference in our Valentine's Day celebration. You mean dinner for two, Mr. Boynton? For two? Why, with this money, I can buy peanuts for every monkey in the zoo. And so, class, if you'll just turn to page 18, we can all go to lunch. Miss Brooks! Oh, Miss Brooks, can I talk to you for a minute? What is it, Harriet? Walter told me he paid you back some money he owed you, and, and I'd like to do the same thing. Here, Miss Brooks, here's the dollar you laid out for two of my lunches last month. But, Harriet, I treated you to those. Why should you treat me to lunch, Miss Brooks? Oh, I don't know. Maybe the market went up. <laughs> Please, Miss Brooks, I insist that you take this dollar. But, Harriet, this is probably your lunch money. Oh, no, it isn't. Stretch Snodgrass owed me this money for months. He just paid me back this morning. Good old Stretch. Since he's been working at Turkey Heaven, he's loaded like a Turk. <laughs> Thanks, Harriet. This money's going to come in very handy. Now, if I could just think of somebody else who owed me some money. Wait a minute. Your father owes me a dollar since last December. I'm going right over and collect it. I'll walk you to his office, Miss Brooks. But if I were you, I'd be very careful how I approach Daddy. 
He wasn't in a very good mood this morning. What was wrong? Well, Mother played a little Valentine joke on him. She cut a big heart-shaped hole in his morning paper. And she said she'd like to see his face at the breakfast table at least one day a year. <laughs> that should be plenty. I mean, that was very clever of your mother, Harriet. I'm glad I didn't send him a Valentine. Well, here we are, Miss Brooks. Good luck. Thanks, Harriet. Now stand back. I'm going to open the cage. <laughs> Uh, pardon me, Mr. Conklin. Oh, oh, good afternoon, Miss Brooks. And thank you for the Valentine greeting. Valentine greeting? But I... I, I... know you chose to remain anonymous, but certain subtleties of phrasing gave you away. The biggest hint, of course, was in the signature. From an admirer. <laughs> oh, I'm not the only one at Madison who feels that way about you, Mr. Conklin. But I am glad you like the card. Yes, it is a dandy. <laughs> probably know it by heart, but I'd like to read it aloud for you, if I may. Certainly, sir. I'd love to hear it. Again. <laughs> it goes, as our principal, you've ruled us with a firm and steady hand. You've hustled and you've bustled on our work you've carefully planned. Though you've guided us and chided us, I've really been in clover, because I know it won't take very long before you topple over. <laughs> Mr. Conklin, I have a confession to make. That is not the card I sent you. It isn't? That's strange. It's the only one I got. Oh, mine must have been held up in the mail. I'll send it to you. I mean, you'll get it tomorrow. <laughs> I'll be looking forward to it. Now, I've got to finish checking the business accounts at the school library, Miss Brooks, so if you'll state your business... Yes, sir. You may not recall this, Mr. Conklin, but during the first week in December, I was taking care of the office while you were out, and a collect telegram came for you. It did? Yes, and I paid for it. You did? Remember, you told me to remind you about it around Christmas time. And did you? Yes, sir. Then you've done your duty. Good day, Miss Brooks. <laughs> but, Mr. Conklin, the reason I'm bringing it up again is that you Stop didn't... Stop dunning me. <laughs> How much is the miserable item... Well, the wire was 97 cents, so I gave him a dollar. You tipped the messenger boy? It was only three cents. You're very generous with my money. <laughs> well, the messenger had no change either, and as I say, it was just three cents. The amount is immaterial. It's the principle that's involved. Oh, you're not so involved, Mr. Conklin. It's just... <laughs> Please, Miss Brooks. I've always felt that tipping is definitely un-American. But the messenger boy didn't mind. He was a little old Frenchman. <laughs> However, sooner than violate your code, just give me 97 cents and I'll write off the balance under the Marshall Plan. <laughs> I'm not small, Miss Brooks. Here's your dollar. Oh, thank you, sir. Now, if you'll excuse just me... Just uh, one moment, please. In going over these accounts from the library, I find that you are six weeks past due on a book. A book? Oh, yes, that was the one I brought home for Mrs. Davis. She can't seem to remember just where she put it. She didn't even read any of it yet. Obviously. The book was called How to Improve Your Memory. <laughs> it's listed at $1.50, and I'll thank you for the money right now. Oh, but Mr. Conklin, we're still looking for it, and but we these may... These accounts are all being closed out immediately, Miss Brooks. If you find the book, we'll be happy to make an adjustment. But I can't afford the dollar fifty at this time. I haven't got it to give you. Tut, 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 Miss Brooks. I just handed you a dollar. And that, you must admit, was like found money. Yes, indeed. 
Like money found at the bottom of a snake pit. <laughs> Look, Mr. Conklin, couldn't this wait until... Uh, don't be petty, Miss Brooks. Here's 50 cents. Just hand me $2 and your account is all squared away. All right. Here you are. Now may I go, Mr. Conklin? Certainly. Good day, Miss Brooks. It's a Lulu so far. <laughs> Hi, Miss Brooks. Oh, hello, Stretch. Thanks for the valentine. Oh, that's okay. Going to the cafeteria for lunch? I might as well. I have 50 cents that's just burning a hole in my pocket. The one that doesn't have a hole in it already. <laughs> but this talk of money is probably boring to anyone as affluent as you are. Oh, I ain't affluent, Miss Brooks. I just got a cold in my head. <laughs> well, it's nice to know there's something in there. By the way, how are things at Fort Knox? Where? Turkey heaven. Do you like your new job? Oh, I like it real good. Of course, I'm just a busboy now, but if I work real hard, I don't always have to be a busboy. I can go places. Especially if you get your own bus. <laughs> you don't understand, Miss Brooks. From a busboy, I could get to be a waiter, and then I could go from waiter to mater. Mater? D. D? Hotel. We seem to have lost contact somewhere. <laughs> Let's start again, shall we? Mater is short for Mater de Hotel. Oh. You know, the head waiter who runs the whole restaurant usually. Boy, to be one of them, you sure got to be elegant. Yes, I know. You only talk to the cream of society, the most cultured, well-bred, best-mannered people in the whole world, boy. And you know what happens when you're a Mater D? What? If they don't slip you a five spot, you don't give none of them crumbs a table. It takes a heap of culture to make a mater D. That's a long way off, I guess. But meanwhile, I'll just keep picking up glasses and learning the business. At least it's good exercise for me. I do a lot of bending over. Bending over? Sure. I drop a lot of glasses, too. <laughs> but it's sure a nice restaurant, Miss Brooks. They got roast turkey, fried turkey, and cream turkey. My favorite is our special, turkey or grating. It's turkey hash varnished with cheese. <laughs> and it's served in a shaving dish. Have you ever tried that? No, I prefer boiled turkey shellacked in the casserole. <laughs> oh, is that good? Oh, take a glass of domestic turpentine with it and you're out of this world. Oh, before I forget, Miss Brooks, here's a credit slip for two free dinners at Turkey Heaven. The boss gave it to me for working extra hard over the weekend. Two free dinners? But, Stretch, I can't take this. You've earned it by your labors. You're the one who should profit by your own efforts. You and nobody else. Well, that's enough acting for one day. Hand it over. Here you are, Miss Brooks. It's no good to me anyway. After nibbling on turkey all day, who can eat? Wait a minute, Stretch. I've got an idea. I want you to find Mr. Boynton and give him this credit slip. Mr. Boynton? That's right. But whatever you do, don't mention to him that I know anything about it. Now, is that clear? Yes, ma'am. I'm to find Mr. Boynton, then give him the slip, and mention that you don't know nothing about it. <laughs> no, Stretch. You're not to mention that I know anything about it. Sorry. That grammatical carelessness will be the death of me. <laughs> Mr. 
It's been a very nice walk, Mr. Boynton, but we're nowhere near the zoo. Well, I, uh, I changed my mind about that, Miss Brooks. Before we left school, I decided that this being Valentine's Day, I'd like to take you to a, a restaurant for dinner. Oh, wonderful. May I pick any place I want? Well, uh, that is, uh, uh, uh... I'd like to go to Turkey Heaven. Go ahead. Pick any place you want. <laughs> Now, this is a coincidence. Isn't that turkey heaven right ahead of us? Oh, that's right, Miss Brooks. It's uh, rather expensive, isn't it? Oh, money isn't everything. Come on, let's go in. <laughs> hey, it's a good thing it's early. We won't have any trouble getting a table. Oh, fine. Look at that turkey being carried out of the kitchen. Isn't it a beautiful bird? Oh, yes, it is. But look, isn't that stretched snodgrass with that tray of glasses? Yes. Brooks, Mr. Boynton, I'll pick up the glasses later. The Mater D isn't here yet anyhow. How'd you like to sit at this table in the corner here? Oh, fine, sir. I know how it is when a couple are going to eat alone. They like a nice secluded place where nobody can see them. Then if they feel like picking up a turkey leg in their hands, who cares? You're so right, Stretch. Now, if you'll just bring it... You got it pretty fast, Miss Brooks. Hope you enjoy everything. Incidentally... I didn't spill the beans to you-know-who about your knowing about the two free dinners to you-know-what <clears throat> Stretch, go get Mr. Boynton a glass of water and bring a couple of menus while you're at it. Yes, ma'am. I'll get them right away. Uh, Miss Brooks, I've decided there's no point in my trying to deceive you, so I'm going to come clean. Stretch gave me a credit slip for two free dinners here. Really? Well, wasn't that sweet? Here you are, folks. Water and menus. I'd like to advise you to read the menus pretty careful, though. The prices in here are mighty steep. Oh, we don't have to worry about that, Stretch. Mr. You-Know-Who has a credit slip for two free you-know-what. <laughs> now, let's see. What should we order? Gosh, Miss Brooks, there's something I forgot to tell you. What's that? This slip isn't good on holidays, and today is Valentine's Day. Oh, no, Stretch, that's terrible. Oh, now, now, calm down, Miss Brooks. I'm not going to see you disappointed. Credit slip or no credit slip, this is one holiday we're going to celebrate and celebrate right. Well, Miss Brooks, what do you think of it? Isn't this a magnificent bird? It certainly is, Mr. Boynton. Now come over here. There's a pelican in this cage. <laughs> And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, when the zoo closed, Mr. Boynton and I caught the five o'clock hamburger and headed for home. But as we passed a nice secluded bench, I stopped him. Look, Mr. Boynton, we may not be able to afford a fancy restaurant, but we can still celebrate Valentine's Day. After all, we are together, we have a bench in the park, and school is over. But how can we celebrate on a park bench, Miss Brooks? Correction, school is just beginning. From just after Valentine's Day in 1950, Eve Arden and company in Our Miss Brooks. And from all of us here at the big broadcast, here's hoping all your Valentine's Day wishes come true. That sentiment comes from our co-producer, Jill Arold Bailey, our audio engineers, Kennedy Wright and Kenny Pirog, and me, Murray Horwitz. We're all here at WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, 
on your smart speaker and at WAMU.org. I could give you the title of tonight's Gunsmoke story, but it might ruin everything for you. So I'll leave the title for later and just say that it's the episode from August 19th, 1956, CBS and Gunsmoke. Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. <laughs> Looks like the Kinsmans is at it again, Mr. Dillon. What? Jeff Kinsman and his wife standing by their wagon over yonder. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's after him about something, isn't she? I declare if I was Jeff, I'd leave her at the ranch when I come to town. Well, she's bigger than he is, Justin. <laughs> by golly, she just about is. Maybe you lost your pride, Jeff Kinsman, but I sure ain't. What kind of a man are you anyway? But are you sure he done it, Kate? Of course he done it. He does it every chance he gets. You gonna let another man flirt with your wife right in public? I just wanted to be sure. There he comes now. Ask him about it. I sure and that's Ed Dolliver she's talking about, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, I guess they're not such good neighbors after all. Look, he's carrying a rifle. Yeah. It's a sharp's fifty. It looks brand new. Eight well, dollars. I guess there won't be no trouble. Jeff Kinsman Hello, ain't Jeff. armed. Mrs. Kinsman, I want to settle something with you, Dolliver. What's wrong, Jeff? You're to leave my wife alone, you hear? What? You stop trying to fool with her. But Jeff, you gone crazy? You tell her, Mrs. Kinsman. She done told me. And I'm warning you, Dolliver, you go get your own woman, leave mine be. I don't know I like being accused this way. Put that gun down, I'll learn you to like They're going to fight, Mr. Dillon. And as long as they aren't going to shoot each other. There. Now what are you going to do, Kinsman? I'll show you. Oh, oh you got a knife. You put that knife away, I ain't armed. All right, hold it, Kinsman. This is my fight, Marshal. Not with a knife. Now drop it. Go on, drop it. No. No, I won't drop it. But I won't use it on him. Not till next time I won't. Come on and fight, you coward. You're bigger than I am. I'll fight you any way you like. I see you bought a new Sharps rifle, Dollar. Never mind guns. You men settle this some other way. Sure. 
Only he better remember I got a sharps rifle at home. Now look, Kinsman, and you too, Dolliver. If there's any shooting out your way, I'll know who to come for. And it won't take any time at all. Uh, that little coward ain't gonna do nothing. And I wouldn't put salt on an old crow like her anyway. <laughs> Jane, you hear what he called me? He called me a coward. He called you? By heaven, Jeff, what things are coming to when a woman's got to put Chester, up with that? come on, let's go. I never heard of a man getting by insulting a lady right in public twice, at each time worse than the other. He's no good, that Dolliver, and you ain't much better. Oh, now, I swear yeah. she's going to have them men fighting yet, Mr. Dillon. That trouble ain't about over. Uh, that's the worst kind of trouble, Chester. You never know who's guilty of what. Coffee, will you, Matt? Yeah, sure, Kitty. Thanks. Is that enough? <laughs> it's enough of this restaurant's coffee. <laughs> well, at least it's hot, anyway. Yeah. Oh, uh, about Ed Dolliver. Mm-hmm. Well, all I know is that he's a bachelor, and I never yet, so I'm shy away from a pretty girl. Yeah. Kitty, uh, huh? I want to ask you a question. Would you call Kate Kinsman pretty? She might have been. Once. That woman's lived a hard life, Matt. Oh? In fact, it was Ed Dolliver who told me about her. Uh, she was married before, you know. No, no, I didn't know. He died. Pneumonia or something. He was a buffalo hunter for the Santa Fe Railroad. He used to take Kate right along with him. Just like she was a man. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe that's why she demands so much respect now. Matt, I don't think objecting to being called an old crow is exactly demanding respect for any woman. What's that? Oh, it's Chester. He looks pretty excited about something. Yeah. Excuse me, Kitty. Mm-hmm. I better go see what he wants. I'll see you later. Sure, Matt. Yeah, what is it, Chester? Miss Kinsman, she's waiting right over there. What? Huh? Is there something wrong? You better hear it from her, Mr. Doom. Yeah. You coming alone today? Yes, sir. Hello, Miss Kinsman. What can I do for you? It ain't me, Marshal. It's my husband. It's Jeff. Uh, what's the matter? He's dead. What? He was murdered early this morning. Ed Dolliver done it. Well, how do you know it was Dolliver? I'll show you how. I left Jeff right on the prairie where I found him. Uh, Chester. Y- yes, sir? Go get Doc. We'll follow Miss Kinsman out to the ranch. <laughs> Thank you.
There he is, Marshal. I ain't touched him, just furled that canvas over him. Uh-huh. Hey, Miss Kurtzman, how'd you happen to find him out here? I heard the shot. I knew Jeff didn't have his rifle with him. Well, whoever did it can't be accused of ambushing him. There's no cover anywhere around here. You're forgetting Ed Dolliver has a new Sharps 50, ain't you, Doc? Oh, yeah, well, um, it won't shoot over the horizon, mother. <laughs> I'll take a look here, ma'am. Marshal, you take a good look around the way I did, you'll see something. No? What? That little clump of switchgrass out there. A man could hide behind that. Clear out there? Why, that's more than a thousand yards. It ain't too far for a sharp. Uh, Chester, right over there and take a look, will you? Okay, Mr. Dillon. Mac. Yeah. Uh, yeah, what is it? There's only one bullet in him. It's not very far in. Now, what do you mean? Oh, it was enough to kill him, all right, but, uh... It was pretty well spent. Whoever fired it was a long ways off. I told you. What was Jeff doing here, anyways? He was putting out bait for wolves, Doc. Poisoning them. We've been bothered lately. Where do you want to bury him, Mrs. Ginsman? Oh, out back of the house. There's a place he liked. Well, I guess we can conduct a service of some sort. Why don't you get Ed Dolliver? I hear he reads the book real good. You haven't seen him around, have you, Miss Kinsley? I can tell you right where he is. Huh? It's noon, ain't it? He's sitting on his front porch like he does every day at noon. He always sits there for an hour, doing nothing. I see. I wonder what he's thinking. What? I mean about having gone out and killed a man because of me. Must be working on his mind pretty strong. Yeah. But you know something? It was one or the other of them. It it come to that. And all because of me. Oh, no. You mustn't feel guilty, Miss Kinsman. It wasn't your fault. Oh, I am guilty, Doc. Just being a woman men fight over just makes me guilty. How'd you find anything, Chester? I found this. Laying on the ground right behind that clump of grass. Oh, what is it? A shell from Sharp's 50. does it, Marshal? Now, Dolliver, it doesn't. There's one thing might have worked for me. Oh, what's that? My new Sharps rifle. Supposing it hadn't ever been fired. You could tell, couldn't you? Easy. Where is it? Ain't no use, Marshal. I was shooting it this morning, trying it out for the first time. You weren't with anybody, huh? No. No, I... I got no alibi, none at all. You don't even seem much interested in trying to clear yourself of this, Dollar. Well, I figure sometimes if a man raises too big a holler about how innocent he is, kind of works to make people think he's guilty. Yeah, sometimes, maybe. Uh, 
Can you think of anybody else who might have shot Jeff? No. I'm the only one, I guess. Yeah. Dollar, I want you to tell me the truth now. Do you have any interest in Miss Kinsman? I wouldn't be proud of it. I could do better than her, Marshal. A whole lot better. Yeah. Yeah, you got a pencil and some paper around here. What? I want to write a note to Miss Kinsman. About what? Well, never mind. Just get it for me, will you? Whatever you say, Marshal. Uh, Chester. Sure. Now, when I get this uh, written, I want you to write over to Miss Kinsman's with it. Sure. But where are you going? Well, I'm taking Dolliver into Dodge to lock him up. But don't you tell her. Now, you stay here tonight, and I'll be back by tomorrow morning. I swear I don't understand. Uh, you will. Later. told you to stay away from that window, Chester. Well, I was only peeking to see if that there Mr. Dolliver was doing all right out there on the porch. Oh, that was he? Oh, yes, sir. He's sitting real quiet, just staring off across the prairie. Yeah, that's good. Most noon, Mr. Dillon. You getting hungry? Well, I didn't have no breakfast to speak of hardly, and now that you mention it, I don't guess I'd mind sitting down to a plate of hot meat and maybe a loaf of sourdough bread. Hey, maybe we could rummage around in his cupboard here some, hmm? I will eat when we get through here. Yeah, sure, but when'll that be? Yeah, not too long, if my hunch is right. And if it ain't? Yeah, you've been hungry before, haven't you? Mm. Yeah, come on over here. I just can't hardly see nothing out of this little hole. And there's a bigger one on your left there. Oh. Oh, yeah, I can see fine now. I got an idea there isn't going to be much to see anyway. You can't never tell. You uh, sure our horses are out of sight, huh? I got them tied up back of the house, I told you, Mr. John. Okay. Hey, look at Mr. Dolliver. Got him. Knocked him right off of his chair. Yeah. Yeah. You see that puff of smoke out there? Mm. Yeah, that's a good thousand yards. Well, that's some shooting, but whoever it is is pretty well hid. Yeah. Now, we'll wait a minute, then we'll go out back and get our horses. We're going to have to ride awful fast. We'll make it. Well, what about Mr. Dolliver? Leave him. He was hit square. Come on. <laughs> in the barn here, Chester. Nobody in sight yet. Now, let's hurry. Uh, 
Uh, tie him up in those first two stalls, huh? All right, sir. Blacking the inside of a cow in here after that blazing sunshine. Your eyes will get used to it after a while. I don't see nobody coming. Yeah, she'll be along directly. I wasn't too sure we'd beat her. Mr. Dillon, what exactly did you tell her in that note you wrote? Yeah, just that Ed Dolliver had a good alibi. Well, who'd you say it was? A woman. A woman? Yeah, I didn't give a name. I just said that Dolliver was going to bring the woman into Dodge tonight and prove it. Well, I'll be darned. Uh, you keep an eye out here, Chester. I'm going to take a look around the bar. No, you wait, Marshal. Well, uh... Stand right where you are. It's her. She beat us back here. Get your hands up, both of you. I can't see a thing in here. No use, Miss Kinsman. You can't shoot both of us. I said get your hands up. Well, I... That Sharps isn't a repeating rifle, you know. Then I'll shoot you, Marshal. And Chester will take you if you do. I heard what you told him. Them lies you wrote. I had to trick you out somehow. You can't prove I did nothing. Oh, you proved it. That had Dolliver's a while ago. That's pretty good shooting at a thousand yards, Miss Kinsman. Huh. Too good for a woman, Marshal. There ain't nobody'll believe you. I didn't believe it myself when we looked at Jeff yesterday. That was quite some shooting, too. Get out of here and leave me alone. I remembered something late, Miss Kinsman. What? How your first husband took you out buffalo hunting with him? Yeah, you can shoot all right. As good as any man. This rifle's aimed right at your chest, Marshal. You know, Miss Kinsman, I feel kind of sorry for you. Sorry? You liked men fighting over you. You needed for them, too. You needed it so bad you told Jeff lies about Ed Dolliver. That ain't so. Oh, yes, it is. You just had to have a man kill over you. But you knew Dolliver wasn't interested, so you shot Jeff yourself. That way, at least people would think they were fighting over you. No. Yeah, my note about Dolliver's alibi being a woman destroyed all that, didn't it? You just couldn't take that. Marshal? Here, give me your rifle. No. I'm glad I killed him. Yeah, but you didn't kill him. What? I sent Dolliver to Dodge for a day or so. What you shot was a couple of grain bags dressed in his clothes. No. Yeah, that's true. No. I hated Jeff, but I hated Dolliver even worse now. Like I say, Miss Kinsman, I'm sorry for you. Jeff was a good man. Now there's nobody to fight for you. William Conrad. You know, on the frontier, it was usually land or water that were fought and died for. But next week, a man dies because of a clabbered building. And that was the West. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. 
Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Jeanette Nolan, Harry Bartell, and Paul Duval. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Now, if I'd told you that the title of that summer 1956 episode of Gunsmoke is Annie Oakley, wouldn't that have given you too much of a clue? The real Annie Oakley, little sure shot as she was billed, wasn't yet a big star in the 1870s when Gunsmoke is set, but she was already a local celebrity by then in her native soil of southwest Ohio. That's my birthplace, too. I'm Murray Horwitz. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Our audio engineers are Kenny Pirog and Kennedy Wright. And our email address is bigbroadcast at wamu.org. You can find us on the web at thebigbroadcast.org, on Facebook at thebigbroadcast, and on Instagram, bigbroadcastwamu. A couple of times in the 1970s, I met the indefatigable comedian, newspaper columnist, and New York man about town, Joey Adams. In fact, I was interviewed once on Mr. Adams's radio show on station WEVD. Well, leave it to co-producer Jill to find a network radio show that Joey Adams hosted in 1950. It was called Rate Your Mate and it was a kind of precursor of television's The Newlywed Game. One spouse had to guess how the other would answer a question. It was a real test of marital love, so we think it's a perfect lead-in to Valentine's Day. From August 5th, 1950, here's an excerpt of the CBS show Rate Your Mate. Think you know what your wife knows? Think you know what your husband knows? You do? Then let's see how you rate your mate. Yes, it's Rate Your Mate, transcribed to New York, the show where it pays to know how much your mate knows about everything. And here's the man in charge of helping you rate your mate, Joey Adams. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, this is my first night on this new CBS program, and I don't want to start right in complaining, but this is the same studio that Arthur Godfrey uses, and he left the place in a terrible mess. It took five men all day just to sweep out his old money. <laughs> I'm really glad to be here as Quizmaster on the show because quiz programs are a big thing today. In fact, on some shows, you don't even have to be there to collect the money. They just call you on the phone and give it to you. So now that when a person answers the phone, they don't say, who is it anymore? They just say, how much? <laughs> the idea of this show, Rate Your Mate, is to find out just how much married or engaged folks really know about each other. Now, let's get into the interesting problems right now as we meet our first pair of mates. Who do we have, Hal Sims? Mr. and Mrs. Peppick meet Joey Adams. <laughs> huh? 
How do you do, Mr. and Mrs. Pepic? How do you do, Welcome to Rate Your Mate. Where are you people from? We're from the state of Washington. I see. And what are you doing in New York? We're here on a honeymoon. A honeymoon, eh? How long have you been married? Four years. <laughs> Mr. Pepic, you waited four years before you took your bride on a honeymoon? That's right, Joe. Well, that's sensible. Why spend a lot of money on your wife until you're sure you like her? But tell me, why didn't you go on a honeymoon right after you were married? Well, we had a sort of a honeymoon, but he broke his leg just before we were married, and, well, it was kind of inconvenient. How did you break it? We're hiking. On a hiking trip? Yes. Now, you're an outdoor man, eh? What kind of sports do you go in for, you two? Well, we're always hiking or bowling or fishing or skating, horseback riding. Mm-hmm. Do you have any children? No, we haven't. I don't wonder. Where would you find the time? <laughs> Mrs. Pepic, with no children, what do you do all day? I'm a registered nurse. A registered nurse, eh? Mr. Pepic, you're pretty smart to marry a nurse. It's much cheaper than having them come in by the day. <laughs> now, Mr. Pepic, what do you do for a living? I'm a patrolman at the Hanford Works at uh, Richmond, Washington. Oh, the Atomic Project, is that it? What do you do there? Well, Joe, I, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. Oh, it's a secret. He doesn't even tell me. Well, but that's an ideal job for a husband. He comes home at night and his wife asks him, uh, what did you do today, dear? He can say, uh, none of your business, darling. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Mr. and Mrs. Pepic. The game must go on. So now's the time for one of you to rate your mate. Which one of you wants to answer the question? Let Joe do it. Joe is going to answer? Well, right. Joe, now that the decision has been made, we're going to see that you take it off stage to a soundproof booth where you won't be able to hear a thing we're saying out here until we press the right button. Let's briefly review the idea. I'll ask Joe Pepic four questions, and before each question, Mrs. Pepic will have to tell me whether Mr. Pepic will answer these questions right or wrong. Now, how do you think he will do on this first question? From which fighter did Joe Lewis win the heavyweight title? Do you think he'll know that one? I don't think so. You think he'll be wrong? Mm-hmm. Higher. Higher. Here's your question. From which fighter did Joe Lewis win the heavyweight title? Uh, I believe from Jack Dempsey. You are wrong, but you win. <laughs> your wife said you didn't know it, and you didn't know it. Here's your fourth question. I'm going to give you the second line of a famous quotation from Shakespeare. You give me the first line. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Do you think he'll know the first line? Uh, I don't think so. Hello. Hello, John. I'm going to give you the second line of a famous quotation from Shakespeare. You give me the first line. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Do you know the first line? I'm sorry, I can't answer that. Well, you are wrong, but you win. <laughs> Your mate said you'd miss that one, so you get $25. You have a total on the scoreboard of $75.25. And thank you both for joining us to play Rate Your Mate. A little bit of Rate Your Mate from the summer of 1950 and just in time for Valentine's Day from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. I don't know if the police still use the word bunco to describe swindlers and confidence games, but it was common parlance in the fall of 1950 when this episode, The Big Betty, aired on NBC and the series Dragnet. 
have to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a bunco detail. A gang of petty swindlers has set up operations in your city. They're experienced, cunning. They work fast. Your job, get them. documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, December 14th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of Bunko Detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain McCauley. My name's Friday. It was 10.35 a.m. when I got to room 38. Bunko detail. Joe? Yeah, Ben. Joe, this is Miss Bergstrom. You talked to her on the phone last night? Oh, yeah, sure. This is my partner, Sergeant Friday. How do you do? Glad to know you. Did you care to sit down? Thank you. I was downtown, so I thought it'd be just as easy for me to come in and see you. Did you bring those things with you, Miss Bergstrom? Here they are. Wristwatch. Pen and pencil set. Mm-hmm. Sure make them look nice, don't they? On the outside, yeah. Let me take the back off the watch for you. There. You can see for yourself, Sergeant. That's junk. Not worth 15 cents. Charged me $48 for that watch. Said it was wholesale. He wasn't making any profit on it. Told me he was doing it because he'd known Harry so well. Watch only ran for a day, then it stopped. How about the pen and pencil set, miss? This is bad. Pen's just a shell, won't even write. Same with a pencil. I paid him $30 for them. Uh-huh. This engraving on the pen was love from Harry. That's Harry's boy is engaged to. That's how the man got me interested to start with. Came to my house and gave them to me. The watch and the pen and pencil. Said Harry had ordered them as presents for me. Mm-hmm. I just had to cry when he brought them. Poor Harry. When did this man come to your home, Miss Braxton? Yesterday morning. Guess I should have been more careful, but I didn't think anybody would do a thing like that. What kind of a story did he give you? Well, he came to the door and told me his name was Spencer. He said Harry had ordered these things as presents for me. Harry told him to deliver them to my house. Wash looked beautiful in the case. I didn't know anything was wrong. I see. Could you go on, please? He told me it was a special order. Said Harry had written him from overseas a week before. Harry was in the Marine Corps, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, he said he hoped the engraving was all right. The way Harry wrote, he wanted it in his letter. I just couldn't take it. I cried. This man, uh, he pretended to be a close friend of Harry? Yeah. That's why I showed him the letter. One from the Marine Corps, but Harry being killed overseas. When did you receive that letter, Miss Braxton? Two days before, on Saturday. Harry's name was on the casualty list on Monday. Yes, we understand. What did the man do when you showed him the letter? He sympathized with me. He pretended to. I didn't think there was any trick. I didn't think anybody was that low. Pen and pencil set looked a little cheap, but I wanted them no matter how cheap they were. Harry's last present to me, that's what I thought. 
How did he broach the idea of money? Well, when he was ready to leave, he told me Harry had ordered the things on credit. So he didn't want to mention it, but he wondered how he could get payment for the watch and the pen and pencil. Well, he didn't show you a bill, did he? An invoice listing the price of the watch or the engraving that was done? No. I didn't want him bothering Harry's mother or father at a time like this. I borrowed some money from my dad and paid him. Let's see, it's $48 for the watch, 30 for the pen and pencil center. Yeah. He gave me a phone number to call if the watch needed adjustment. And when I found the watch was a fake, I called the number. It was a Chinese laundry. They didn't know anything about it. You haven't seen or heard from this man since he left your house yesterday morning? No. Could you describe this man for us, Miss Bergstrom? What he looked like? Clothes he was wearing? What? It's right here. In this slip of paper, Sergeant. I wrote it all out for you. Thank you. Well, you're not alone, if that's any consolation. There's an army widow out in Hollywood who was cheated on the same kind of deal last Friday. So cruel, using a dead person's name to cheat you. Yes, ma'am. How can anybody get lower than that? They keep trying. Ben and I took Miss Bergstrom's crime report. The phony watch and pen and pencil set were booked as evidence. In the past two weeks, we'd received a half a dozen identical complaints from relatives or friends of lately deceased persons. The swindler or con man, as he likes to be called in his trade, gets the names of lately deceased persons from the obituary column or the military casualty list in the newspapers. Then he fixes up some cheap article of merchandise with appropriate engraving and calls on the friends and relatives of the deceased. He pretends to know nothing about the death of the person whom he claims placed the order for the merchandise. In almost every case, the friend or relative agrees to pay for the articles at some exorbitant price. For the con man, it's a lucrative racket. For the public, a vicious one. Wednesday, December 15th, Ben and I looked up an informant, a former con man. What do you think of it, fellas? Been in business for two months, doing fine. What do you think of it? Looks great, Judge. Nice setup. Finest baby laundry in South Los Angeles. That's why I advertise. Hey, you don't think that's too broad, do you? No, I don't think so, Judd. You got some nice equipment here. Baby laundry. How'd you ever get started? Father-in-law set me up with a loan. Says you got tired of me trying to sell him bum watches. Well, that's a good break for you, Judd. Say, so you got a couple of minutes? We'd like to talk to you. Sure thing. Come on back here. You okay? Fine, thanks. Yeah, I've squared away, living a solid life. Not bad at all, you know. It surprised me. You ever see any of the old gang, Judd? Not much, no. Some of the old grifters look me up now and then, try to touch me. Now go. Hey, here you are. Hold one up. Mm, yeah, thank you. Okay, fellas, what can I do for you? Oh, we'd like to know how close you got your ear to the ground, Judd. There's a gang of bunks in town. They're working hard. What pitch are they using? They're working the old bits, the casualty lists. Thought maybe you might be able to help us. I don't know. How long have you been going? Last couple of weeks. Had half a dozen reports on them. That's one thing they never could tap me for. Obituary racket. Lousiest racket there is. Can you do anything for us? I heard one little rumble about it. Four or five guys in the con mob. Is that right? We know that, Judd. Where can we look for them? And you know my position. When I quit the game, I quit. The only contacts I make are when some of the old boys come around for a touch. Well, how much have you heard about the game? Well, what I said, there's four or five of them out of the Middle West, I think. You got any idea at all where we could start looking? Well, I can start checking for you. Have you nailed any of them yet? I've got to find them before we can arrest them, Judd. Yeah, well, as I say, when I quit the game, I quit. But maybe I can take a few soundings for you. Can't promise you anything. I'm strictly on the up and up. Okay, Judd. You know where to get in touch with us. We'll appreciate anything you can do. And well, you'll help me plenty of times, fellas. Wouldn't hurt a bit to tab that bunch. 
walk out with you. Fine. Well, I see you got all the machines going. Baby laundry business must be pretty good, huh? It's a staple commodity, fellas. Kids always need a fresh change. Just a minute. Yeah, look at this. Just look at the size of it. Yeah. You ever see anything so small in your life? It's cute, huh? Yeah, what is it? New kind of soakers, I think. Let's see the label here, right? Yeah, Mother Greg Super Soakers. Kids think they should give me a wallet, you know? And we might as well check the office while we're here, Ben. Can I use your phone, Judd? Yeah, right over there on the wall. You got change? Yeah, thank you. I have. Two five seven two. Two five seven two. Bunko fugitive, Brian. Joe Friday, Tom. Anything doing? Yeah, Joe. I think we might have a lead on those bunks working the obituary racket. What you got? They reached a woman in Highland Park. Where are you? Baby laundry. Oh, well, it's a Mrs. Westerly. Her daughter was killed in an auto accident. Last night they came around and sold the woman a watch her daughter was supposed to have ordered. Also a necklace and pen and pencil set. Mm-hmm. Two hundred and fifty dollars. Usual junk. You talked to this Mrs. Westerly? Yeah, we took the report, the man's description, his M.O., the rest all match up. What's the lead? She watched the man when he left her house. Yeah? He got in a taxi cab. 10.30 a.m. While Sergeants Bryant and Ullery got out a broadcast on the suspect, Ben and I drove to the offices of the cab company where we contacted the special agent. He helped us check the way bills for the preceding night. On the way bill for cab 213, we found the trip listed. Starting point, the intersection nearest the Westerly home. Destination, a hotel on South Flower Street. We went to the hotel and interviewed the desk clerk. From the description we gave him, he identified the man as Fred Gene Norris from Minneapolis. At least that's the way he'd signed the hotel register. The clerk told us Norris wasn't in. We had him show us Norris's room. In his suitcases, we found quantities of dime store costume jewelry, monogrammed, and two dozen cheap wristwatches and wallets and handbags done in poor quality imitation leather. Also a portable engraving set. The clerk told us that Norris was expected back shortly. We told him to say nothing to the suspect when he arrived. We called the office and arranged for a stakeout at the hotel, and we drove back to the office. 1 p.m. They told us Norris had been recognized from his description and picked up by Unit 17R on the way back to his hotel shortly before noon. Ben and I joined Sergeants Ollery and Bryant in the interrogation room where they were questioning the suspect. He looked about 40 years old, white, male American, about 6 feet tall, 170 pounds. He would admit nothing. Bryant kept questioning him. You're wasting our time on your own, Norris. Face it, you were playing a rough game and you lost. Now, how about it? You're going to feel pretty silly when you find out you got the wrong guy. Who do you work for, Fred? You can do what you want about investigating me, having a thing to hold me on. There's no use wasting any more time. You got that list of victims. Yeah. These are the ones that tab Norris. Uh, thank you. A couple more here, Joe. Thanks, man. Miss Bergstrom there, please. Oh, this is Sergeant Friday, Miss Bergstrom. Bunko detail? Yeah, we picked up a suspect. We'd like to see if you can identify him. Would it be all right if we sent a card for you right now? All right, fine. Thank you very much. Bye. (laughs) 
Look, I can't sit here all day. I have business to attend to. Quiet noise. He's on the phone. Hello? Miss Cronin there, please. This is Sergeant Friday calling, Miss Cronin. Bunko detail? Yes, ma'am. That's right. I'm sorry to disturb you, but we have a suspect in custody down here. Yes, ma'am? Hey, Sergeant. Could you come down to the city hall right away? Sergeant. Uh, would you hold on just a minute, please? Thank you. Yeah, Norris. You got me. 2.58 p.m., we informed the victims that the special show-up had been canceled. And we called in a stenographer and had her take Fred Norris' statement. In addition to listing the crimes he committed, he also told us that there were six men in the Bunko gang besides himself. He gave us the names and descriptions of each one of them. He stated that they'd been operating in Los Angeles for the past four months. Norris said that none of them had ever met the leader of their Bunko gang. The only contact they had with the leader was through one of the older gang members, a man by the name of Wesley Fisher. Before Norris was taken to Central Jail for booking, he gave us the address of the house where he had been living with the other gang members. Norris's information on the suspects was checked through R&I. We got one mate, Wesley Fisher. He had one prior arrest two years before on a grand theft charge, but he'd been released for lack of evidence. 3.15 p.m., together with Sergeants Ullery and Bryant and two men from Metro Squad, we drove out to the address given us by Fred Norris. Turned out to be a neat-looking bungalow in the West Hollywood area. Take the front door, Joe. Yeah. Say, Tom. Yeah? You want to have Johnson and Brewer cover the back of the place, please? Okay, Joe. Maury and I will cover the sound. Thanks. Let's go, man. Mm-hmm. Did you want to see the people who live there? Yes, ma'am. Do you want to check for the termites? No. I'm Mrs. Callahan, the owner. No, ma'am. We want to see the tenants. Well, I'm afraid you're a little late. Is that so? You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. Wednesday, December 15th, 4 p.m., we made a thorough check of the house, which the six suspects had just vacated. We found nothing that would help us. We talked to the owner of the house where the suspects had been living. She told us that she'd rented the place furnished to them about three months before. She identified Wesley Fisher's mugshot, but she told us that he'd used the name of Charles Wilder. She also recognized each of the other gang members from the descriptions that Fred Norris had given us. She told us that while they were living there, the men seemed to keep odd hours and that they had a car. She told us that she'd taken the license number of the car the day the men moved in. The number was checked with DMV. It was registered in the name of Wesley Fisher, 1008 California Street. It's a transient hotel. The manager told us Fisher had moved about nine months ago. There was no forwarding address. We got out an all-points bulletin on Wesley Fisher, requesting that all occupants in his car be held for investigation of grand theft. Thursday, December 16th, 8 a.m., Ollery Bryant, Ben, and I met with Captain McCauley. Where are they getting all this junk they're palming off? Where's their source of supply? Mm, guy we picked up, Norris, told us they brought a good supply of it out with him from the Middle West. That hotel room Norris had downtown, they were using that for a warehouse. They didn't want to keep the stuff at the house they were living in. How are they hitting? Any possibility of stakeouts? No, not unless we cover every name in the columns. You might have to try it. Something's got to be done. Look at these. Two more this morning. Straight out of the obituary column. Oh, took one family for $90. Another one for 60. How about that last run through the stats office? Help you any? I'll pull some more mugs for us. I'm going to show them to the victims this morning. How about this Norris? You think he's come up with everything? 
We were up talking to him again at county jail yesterday. Didn't have anything new, Skipper. We dropped in at the sheriff's bunko detail. They've got one new case, same M.O. Description comes close to one of the guys. The victim was the father of a Navy flyer lost overseas. They sold him a gold watch chain that his son was supposed to have bought him for a present. Solid brass. The sheriff's men got anything new? Well, been working pretty close with them. Nothing new. Excuse me. Uncle Fugitive, Captain McCauley. Can I talk to Joe Friday? Oh, yeah, hold on. You, Friday. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Joe, this is Judd. Can you meet me out of my place? What do you got? The name Wesley Fisher mean anything to you? 8.30 a.m. Ben and I drove out and met with Judd at his home. He was still in his bathrobe when he met us at the door. He told us he had an important appointment downtown at 9 o'clock and he was in a hurry. We talked to him while he shaved. Hope you fellas don't mind. Can't miss this date. Lining up some new business, you know. It's all right, Judd. Go right ahead. Yeah, I gotta move fast on these things before they cool, you know. Well, what you say with us, Judd? What's the story? Well... I don't know what's worse. Brother Max called me this morning. Remember my brother Max, don't you? No, I don't think so. I watched the Pink Parrot Bar in South Maine. When you were in to see me the other day about those grifters you want, I gave my brother a tumble on it. Told him to keep an eye open. I have a towel with you. Oh, yeah. Here you go. Thanks. They're all steamed up. What'd Max come up with? Well, he's night bartender at the parrot, you know. Now, last night he spotted a couple of guys at the bar. Had some day-old newspapers. Uh-huh. They were sitting there with the papers turned in the obituary column. Checking off names, writing on addresses. Max is pretty sharp that way. Spotted them right off. Lousy razor. Does Max know these two men he spotted? No, not by name, but... He knew the one of them lived in the hotel next door to the bar. When the hotel night clerk came in for a beer, Max asked him about it. He tabbed one of the guys as Wesley Fisher. Did he have anything on that man? No, the clerk told Max he doesn't live at the hotel, but he spends a lot of time there with Fisher. Well, had he seen Fisher and this other guy at the bar before? Yeah, Max has been in before. Got it lashed up a couple times. Mm-hmm. Say, would it be okay uh, to contact your brother at his home, Judd? Sure. We don't want to contact him at the bar. Yeah, sure thing. Get your address and I'm finished here. It just moved. Uh, I don't know. Hope I didn't get you guys out here for nothing. We appreciate it, Judd. What's good? Seems to fit. Had a hotel down there. It's a hang-up kind, man. Angles are all there. Let's hope Fisher is. 8.53 a.m. We arrived at the hotel on South Main Street. We checked with the desk clerk who told us that Wesley Fisher had room 37. As far as he knew, Fisher was in his room. We got a pass key from the clerk and went up to room 37 where we found Fisher and another man. He identified himself as Raymond Breen, one of the gang members identified by Fred Norris. We also found a small supply of cheap watches and pen and pencil sets in Fisher's car. It was parked near the hotel. It was impounded. We took both suspects back to the city hall. We questioned them separately in the interrogation room. Breen was first, but he refused to answer our questions. He was taken back to the squad room, and Wesley Fisher was brought in. Sit down, Fisher. Thank you. Guess you know why you're here. No, I haven't the least idea. All right, then we'll show you. Do you know Fred Norris? Fred Norris? 
Name sounds a little familiar. Can't quite place it. He places you pretty well. He says he worked with you in Breen up till a couple of days ago. That's so? Yeah. He says he lived with you in that bungalow out in West Hollywood. That's so? Norris, West Hollywood. When was that? Two days ago, Fisher. Your landlady identified your mugs. She even had the license number of your car. What's it prove, gentlemen? It proves you're lying. You and Bring work together. You did work with Norris. You're part of one of the filthiest rackets going. Gentlemen, you're making a bad mistake. No, no, there's no mistake, Fisher. Your picture's been identified by at least a half a dozen victims. Now, you can go on playing coy all you want, but we can prove that the pen and pencil sets that you sold some of the victims are identical to the ones we found in your car. I haven't any idea what you're talking about. Believe me, that's the truth. You wouldn't know the truth if it followed you, mister. Now, look, maybe you're great at conning old men and young girls, but don't try to pass any of it here. Now, just a moment. Now, you listen, you two-bit thief. I couldn't begin to tell you off of the rotten things you've been pulling off in this town for the past three months. That young girl who lost her boyfriend overseas, that widow out in Hollywood, the old man in Highland Park whose wife passed away. You must have felt pretty sharp cheating them out of a few bucks. Maybe you don't remember, mister, but we do and they do. You're going to pay for them. You all through? I'm through, Fisher. You're just starting. I have nothing further to say, gentlemen. You can talk to my lawyer. We'll give him your new address. Yes. County Jail. Suspects Wesley Fisher and Raymond Breen were booked and transported to the county jail. Both of them were positively identified by the victims. Warrants were obtained for the three suspects, Norris, Fisher, and Breen. They were arraigned and held to answer at a preliminary hearing on several counts of grand theft. During the next two weeks and through the Christmas holidays, identical complaints of bunco operations continued to come in. Friends and relatives of lately deceased persons were still being victimized. The gang's operations continued as usual. There was only one change. The crime report showed that a woman was now operating in the obituary racket along with the male suspects. Christmas came and went. On New Year's Eve, Ben and I were assigned to standby duty. A few minutes before 8 p.m., we got a call from the county jail that Wesley Fisher wanted to see us. Went to the 10th floor of the jail interview room. I'm not going to take all the heat. They're in just as deep as I am. If they can't do right by me, I'll square it up myself. I'll tell you everything I know. Go ahead, Fisher. What is it? Her name's Betty McGraw. She's the one you've been looking for. The whole idea was hers. She planned it out. She got everybody together. It was her show. Where can we find her? 213 Foster, apartment 8. Wesley Fisher gave a complete statement of all his crimes and also implicated the other members. He told us Betty McGraw was his girlfriend. She'd come up with the idea for the obituary racket. She gathered the men together for the job, and it had been planned that she was to stay in the background. In case of trouble, she would furnish aid to the gang members in the form of bail bond money and lawyers. She received a percentage of the take from each of the gang members. We checked her through R&I. She had a criminal history dating back 11 years. We obtained her mugshot. 10.30 p.m. We went out to the address Fisher gave us. A maid answered the door. She told us that the McGraw woman was not there, that she'd gone to a New Year's Eve celebration at a downtown hotel. It was 11.15 when we got there. We identified ourselves to the special officer at the hotel and showed him the mugshot of Betty McGraw. He thought he'd seen her at the main bar. We started looking. Sure do pack them in. Yeah. Hey, excuse me, please. Can I get through here? Thank you. Sorry. Excuse me. Hey, Joe, over this way. I think we can get through. Okay. Do you see her yet? No, they're jammed in there. I can't see a thing. But... Hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Can you see that at the end of the bar there? Yeah. And the black red? Oh, yeah. That's her. Would you let us through here, please? Excuse me. Sorry. Joe? Right behind you. <laughs> Is your name Betty McGraw? <laughs> Is your name Betty McGraw? Police officer, we'd like to see you outside. Okay, let's go. 
trial was held in Superior Court, Department 93, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. The remaining members of the Bunko Gang were apprehended and brought to trial. All of them, including the gang leader, Elizabeth McGraw, were tried and convicted of grand theft. They are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet, portions transcribed from Los Angeles. Dragnet, the Big Betty from November 23rd, 1950, and tonight, from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arold Bailey co-produces the show, and the audio engineers are Kennedy Wright and Kenny Pirog. And this is WAMU Washington, in HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. The city of Chicago has a central position in our geography and in the development of American radio. Some of the most popular and important national programs originated in Chicago, including Fibber McGee and Molly, Lights Out, and, we must point out, Amos and Andy. The soap opera was born in Chicago, and tons of prize fights, big band remotes, and other broadcasts came from the city of the big shoulders, as Carl Sandburg called it. One of the town's greatest contributions was in the field of African-American radio. And during this Black History Month, we're about to hear from some of those disc jockey pioneers of the 1940s and 50s, first in Chicago and later in Memphis, Tennessee. It's two installments melded into one, Jackie Cooper and Al Benson and WDIA, The Goodwill Station from the public radio documentary series first broadcast in 1996 and redistributed on its 25th anniversary by PRX. Hosted by the late singer Lou Rawls and produced by Jackie Gales Webb, it's Black Radio telling it like it was. Destination Freedom. Seven minutes, the red hot beat me down, bring you up, bring you up today. <laughs> this is John back on the scene. I know you got to have some soul, because I got me some soul. I have a dream today. We hadn't been laughing. 
We couldn't have gotten a point across. Everybody get up boogie. You're digging W O L. Black Radio, telling it like it was. A history of radio and the African-American culture. I'm Lou Rawls. You know, growing up in a city like Chicago is quite a cultural experience, especially on the musical side. Because there was so much going on in that city. But you see, Chicago... It's the home of some of the best music in America. I would say in the world, for that matter. It's got the best jazz. It's got the best blues. And, of course, you can't even begin to talk about the gospel music that came out of that city. The Windy City was also the home of two legends in black radio. That was Al Benson and Jack Cooper. Say, um, I noticed here that there's quite a bit of news in the press daily now with respect to socialized medicine. And seemingly that the AMA is somewhat bitter against it. But uh, what I always assumed that was socialized medicine when you go to a party and insist on dancing with your doctor. Jack Leroy Cooper was America's first black disc jockey with a commercially sustained program. It all started in 1925. Now, at that time, Negroes weren't allowed in Washington, D.C.'s radio station, WCAP. But you know what Cooper did? He turned his cap around backwards and pretended to be a delivery boy. And he got into the building. Then he convinced an orchestra leader to let him be the straight man in the comedy act. Here, Miss Gertrude Roberts Cooper picks up the story. So the man agreed. This was his advent into radio. And one fellow who was hearing him said, you're doing this quite backwards. You should be the comedian and let uh, the orchestra lead be the straight man. So I think he got $5 performance three times a week, but, but that's how it all began. After his successful premiere on radio in Washington, Cooper was determined to make it big in Chicago. He eventually bought time on foreign language station WSBC. And what he did is he fit into the ethnic radio scene in Chicago and met a fellow named Silverstein who had a station called WSBC. And Silverstein's goal was to serve all of the ethnic communities in Chicago. Historian Mark Newman says that from the start, Cooper set out to make a lot of money. The way you did it is that you would buy time from the station, then sell the time to advertisers, develop your programming and your sponsors yourself. So all the radio station provided was the wherewithal, and then you got all the money. And what he did is he took care of his business on a very, very professional level. And that's how he succeeded. In 1929, Cooper developed the All Negro Hour. It mirrored the variety shows on the networks, but it featured Cooper and other black talent. By the 30s, Mr. Cooper had quite a few live programs on the air. His fame as the first black disc jockey started one weekend in 1931 when the union pulled the pianist off Cooper's non-union show. Rumor has it that Jack carved a hole in a piano bench, stuck in a turntable, put the mic in front of it, and continued his broadcast. 
As a kid growing up in Chicago, myself and the late Sam Cooke and Jerry Butler, Gene Chandler, the Dells, the Shylights, and of course Mahalia Jackson, she was the queen mother. But we all started out singing gospel music. Now, this is where Mr. Cooper became a very important conduit for us because he was a leader in the broadcast of religious programming in the black community. Gracious Lord. Here's former radio station secretary Florence Summers, and she says Cooper introduced his radio listeners to Mahalia Jackson as well as many others. She started out at this church, and nobody knew Mahalia at the time, but because of the broadcasts, and especially with the blacks being so attracted to the different church programs, that really was her beginning. I am Truth is, your hands over there on the clock seem to be pointing down at the old book over there that says, Let's find missing relatives. <laughs> We're sure going to do our very best, Jack. And friends, we like to list your age to find a Franklin A. Frazier. Left Charleston, South Carolina, October 31st. Was last seen November 1st in Greensboro, North Carolina. He left there with Chicago as his destination, but hasn't been heard from since. Over a period of 12 years, Cooper's Missing Persons broadcast helped locate more than 20,000 people. That's a lot of people, man. Friends, if you'd like to use this free service, you're welcome to. Send us your letter and address it to Jack L. Cooper, 1331 West 11th Place, Chicago. Luckily for Mr. Cooper, uplifting his race also raised his income. By the 40s, he was grossing six figures. Retired WHFC Secretary Florence Summers. Jack, unbeknownst to most everybody, he owned a 55 apartment building near the plaisance of the University of Chicago. But he had to put it into a trust so nobody would be aware of the fact that they were renting from a black owner. He built this beautiful home he had on the south side with only one bedroom because he didn't want his wife's family to start barging in on him. Many of his broadcasts were done from his home studio. But Mr. Cooper also was doing live broadcasts from his mobile unit. Al Raglan was a teenager when he first worked with Jack Cooper. They re did remotes from Calumet City on the Strip in bars, you know, and they'd have contests, and I'd go out and set those up and act as a staff announcer. And it was really, really a great time, <laughs> you know, being 17 and 18 years old and being an announcer, you know, it was big fun. Cooper's Chicago Broadcasting Empire grew every year. He broadcast Negro League Baseball until 1946. By 1947, he was even spinning R&B records. 
Although he hated the term disc jockey, he wanted to be called commercial radio announcer. But no matter what you called him, he was on a roll. For 41 hours a week on four stations, you could listen to Jack L. Cooper Productions with its 50 sponsors. He showed the nation that black-oriented programming could make a lot of money. Here's Chicago DJ Richard Stamps. During the period of his height, Jack must have had 15 or 20 satellites. People that worked for him that portrayed his type of thinking and so forth on radio. He had a white a projection. I guess a lot of white people didn't know he was black. But to me, no, no mistake about it, and to the average black person, but he never tried to portray himself as anything else except black. This is the voice of Jack L. Cooper. We at this time urge a vote of thanks on the part of everyone listening to me at this particular time to make known to Governor Leroy Collins of the state of Florida for his stand and his expressions with respect to the fact that regardless of what your, what your race, color, or creed is, if a store is open to the public and taking the public's money in any department of that store, everybody should be accorded the same treatment regardless. Here's Cooper's brother-in-law, Bob Roberts. He offered something to black people that they could appreciate, and that was a black man who didn't necessarily sound like he came from the bowels of Mississippi. Black people were proud of the fact that uh, a black man could talk good English, could command your respect for the way he talked, things that he said, the way he said them. And he was a source of pride for a lot of black people. Jack Cooper dominated black radio in Chicago until the end of World War II. Then there was a new guy on the air, and he was a different sound. Time, 10 a.m. This is WGES 1390 on the dial. Now it's time for your old friend and swing master with Swing and Sway. And now here he is, Al Benson. Thank you. And good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Here I am, all ready and all set to bring to you 30 minutes of Red Hot Beat Me Down, bring you up swing tunes of today. And now it's on with the show. And the name of our first tune as we bring it to you here is Roof Brown doing 5, 10, 15 My name is Herb Kent. I'm an air personality on V103. Uh, as Chicago was expanding, we came close to having a million blacks in Chicago. And in the 40s, along came Al Benson, a southern gentleman who maintained a very strange southern accent. Obviously, he wasn't white. He mispronounced words by the score. He said them just however they came out of his mouth. For that living room suite, bedroom suite, dining room suite, or that kitchen outfit, go to the Chicago Furniture Company where you get the best in furniture and where you can get little or no money down and easy weekly or mom monthly payments. Yes, monthly payments will do it for you. That's the great Chicago Furniture Company, 4238 Cottage Grove Avenue on Chicago's Great South Side. He would eat and talk at the same time. I have seen him with a mouthful of food. The record would be over. He'd just take and spit the food out in his hand and continue talking. When he was through, he put the food back in his mouth. Oh, it was... 
it was it was hilarious, but he was very, very effective. Remember, money down, forget it. Get the best of game is Chicago Furniture Company. And now we go back to music for your listening pleasure, and we bring to you Billy Holiday doing God Bless the Child. Let's get it on. Chicago radio veteran Lucky Cordell says that in addition to Benson's unique style of delivery, it was his choice of musical selections that made him so popular with Chicago's new migrants from the South. My family, you know, who all migrated from the South, I mean, when you came in the house, there was no TV, and usually the radio was on, and if it was evening, it was Al Benson. The main thing that he had going was... He played music that nobody else was playing. There was nowhere else they could hear this music that they grew up with than him. It would be the same thing, um, someone coming from a foreign country, and there was only one guy in town playing that music. And there was a lot of these people, you know, I mean, it'd be instant, instant. I tell you, he was an overnight success. He went on the air and words spread like a wildfire. Have you heard this new guy? This Al Benson. My name is Eddie O.J. I never wanted to be like Al Benson because I felt like Al Benson, now no better today, was killing the King's English. But you, you couldn't get a record played in Chicago without seeing Al Benson. He had all the business tied up. He had all the furniture companies. You name it, he had it. And he was still talking flat. But he was rich and knew what he was doing, and we didn't know. Al Benson was the king. This is WGEN's Chicago 12. You know, if you have nothing to wear tonight, don't worry about it. Just take your garments into picking cleaners, and they'll be ready for you in four hours' time. Remember, to be recognized, you've got to be picking-ized. And now here is Big Joe Turner as he does Chains of Love. Legendary disc jockey Jack the Rapper Gibson remembers Al Benson well. What a lot of people didn't know, Al was a preacher. Uh, he had a church, and he lived above the church, and his name was Lena. Arthur Lena was his name. And a guy was leaving for the Navy, because this was like at the end of World War II. That left a spot open, so Al's church was on this station, and so... The owners came to Al and asked Al, they said, well, Reverend Lena, uh, you do the show on Sunday. Why not play some music, some race music during the rest of the week and make you some more money for the church? That's what they told him. And when they told him that, he said, oh, for the church, let me see what I can do. So he went in and asked his congregation, would they allow him to play the devil's music? That was what he told him. And he said, but, you know, they kind of grumbled. He said, but. They're going to give me money, and it'll go into the coffers of the church. So the church folks say, yeah, go to work for <laughs> Change your name. So he changed his name from Arthur Lena to Al Benson because the guy's name that he took the place of, his name was Al Renson. You want something good? Then try the wonderful sausage, Parker House. There's none greater. There's none finer tasting than Parker House. Parker House gives you that flavor, 
that just right taste. Get some today. This is Al Benson, cool, tall, dark, and handsome here on WGES Chicago 12. And now it's on with music. His loyal listeners learned to trust him, and therefore he could sell them almost anything. Jack Gibson remembers how the old swing master could sell products better than anybody. I would answer the phone for him. And at one particular time, I can remember, back in 1945, it was very fashionable for the black women of that day to wear fake fur called Mouton Lamb. And Al was selling the coat so fast, he was selling them out. Everybody was buying them. So <laughs> phone called, and the guy Al was on the phone. This was smiling Al Jacobs. So he said, Jack, would you tell Al we just got another shipment of the Mouton lamb fur coats in. So I said, okay. I whispered into Al's ear. I said, Al, guess what? Smiling Al just called and said he had shipment of Mouton lambs in. Just got them. $49.95, dollar down, and 50 cents a week. That's going to be the new price. So Al said, all right, Jack, I got you. I got you. I got you. The old swing master take care of this right now, right now. Let me get on there. Stop the record engineer. Say, smiling Al Jacobs just got a new shipment of mutton lamb fur coats. <laughs> and we just fell out laughing. Because before he got off the program, they had sold every one of the hundred, I guess, he had just bought. But all the women were coming into the store, thought that there was a new fur coat up called mutton lamb fur coat. But Al misconstrued the word. And instead of saying mouton lamb, he said mutton lamb. <laughs> There are 6,999 drops of golden goodness in every bottle. Say, if you haven't tried Canadian Ace, do it today. And now here is Lloyd Price, as he does a thing that's entitled, Lordy, Miss Cordy. Chicago disc jockey Richard Stams developed his radio nickname based on the success of Al Benson. And they were friends at the time. And I didn't want to turn Benson's thoughts against me, so Benson called himself the King of Swing, so I called myself the Crown Prince of Disc Jockeys. And that was how that started. And because of that little idea, Benson and I began to travel all over the country together. He was teaching me about national advertising companies, et cetera, and uh, national products that he had on the station. fact is, Benson had more nationals on his shows than any other disc jockey in the United States at that time, any other black disc jockey and most white disc jockeys. Al Benson bought time from the radio station just like Jack L. Cooper. And then Benson's heavy broadcast schedule led him to hire another announcer salesman, Lucky Cordell. His demeanor was royalty. And as I told you, he was shrewd. When, when uh, beer sales were lagging, a certain beer, I don't remember which one, he would get a list of the lounges and taverns that didn't have that beer in stock, and he would visit them with an entourage of maybe eight or ten people. Naturally, when he walked in, everyone recognized him. Al Benson, Al Benson, you know. They would sit him down, and, and they would be scurrying around, and he would say, uh, Listen, uh, bartender, give me and my friends a round of uh, old uh, Budweiser, and, and give everybody in the house a Budweiser. And the guys, uh, Mr. Benson, uh, I must apologize. We don't have Budweiser uh, in stock. You what? You don't have my beer in stock? Well, I tell you what, cancel all of that. Come on, let's go. We'll find some place where they serve our beer. 
I'll come back here when he gets it. <laughs> he knew all the time they didn't have his beer, right? As the old swing master's popularity grew, so did the black music industry. Al Benson demanded first play on many records so that he could say that he broke the hits. Radio veteran Sid McGoy, hey Sid. Benson became such a power, and the record distributor that I told you that I worked for, he had to go around to Benson hat in hand, honey, to try to get the records played, you know? And Benson would really make him grovel, honey. <laughs> <laughs> this fellow was a guy by the name of Monroe Passes. <laughs> and Monroe would talk about Benson, that son of a blah, 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 blah. And phone ring, and he'd have to go over, go over to Benson. <laughs> and he'd go over there groveling. <laughs> and I mean, everybody. <laughs> That's when the payola thing started. This jockey E. Rodney Jones was another witness to the power of Al Benson in the music industry. He played the music that he wanted. In fact, he didn't even know the records. Man. He didn't even care anything about the records. He was a salesman personified. Ewart Abner promoted music for DJ and Motown Records. You weren't successful just because you had money. If you were not able to build a relationship with Al based on respect, okay, he wouldn't take your money. Al Benson was as much a star as the artist he played. Al Benson brought all the big shows to Chicago's Regal Theater. He was quite a showman. DJ Jockey Jack Gibson remembers Benson at the Bud Billiken Parade. And Al would be the Grand Marshal of the parade every year because everybody was looking for it. Al Benson meeting him at Washington Park. And Al would tell everybody, we're going to have Big Bud Billiken pray. We're going to have everybody come on out here. We're going to get it on. Yeah, we're going to do Washington Park. And we're going to do the thing out there. Boy, the old swing master going to be doing it. And I know y'all want to be there with me. Come on down. Everybody be there. We're going to drink up all the Pepsi-Cola and eat up all the hot dogs in the place. <laughs> and that was his thing. And you couldn't get in the park for all of the people on the south side being in the park. Like Jack Cooper, Al Benson believed in uplifting his race. Jack Gibson was amazed by one of Benson's stunts. He hired an airplane and flew over Mississippi and dropped the thing, say, free my people and all this kind of stuff. I didn't even want to ride a train through Mississippi, let no fly over it. <laughs> Ruth McCauley is Al Benson's sister-in-law. He did a lot. He fought for the Negro race. To me, he taught blacks that whatever you wanted, you could achieve it if you put an effort to it. And I believe this. Here's the old swing master himself, Al Benson. Uh, I, I've done a lot of civil rights fighting in my own way, not making very much noise, but opening doors when the shapery was Jim Crowing black people. I broke that down. I got on the phone one day and told them I want to make reservation. And I said, they said, what is your name? I said, Al Benzonski. He said, uh, all right, Mr. Benzonski, uh, how many are you going to have in your party? I said, six. When I got there at the Shapery on the second floor, the doorman said to me, I had a cat black. He said, where are you going? I said, where do you think I'm going? 
I'm going upstairs. So I got to the elevator, girl asked me, says, uh, who do you want to see up there? I said, I want to see anybody that's performing up there. So I got upstairs, and the head waiter came over to see me. He says, I'm sorry, we're all sold out. I said, well, that's good. I'm glad business is that good, but you have a reservation for me. He said, that must be some mistake. I said, there isn't any mistake. He says, what's your name? I said, I'm Alvin Zonsky. Oh, they said, you, you are Alvin Zonsky? I said, yes. So and you got a reservation for it? Here's my name right here. So from that day on, yeah. uh, Jim Crowism was broken up at the great uh, Shape Free Nightclub in Chicago. A.J. Parker's Al Benson's daughter. Recently, my sister called me up, and she has this letter that my father wrote to us that we received after he passed away. And within that letter, it states, I want my children to be close to God because my father was an ordained minister. And he says, I want them to get closer to God um, and how God will put them on the trail that they need to be within life. And he also stresses in there, I want them to take voice lessons because within entertainment, they can go everywhere they want to within life. Al Benson's radio career ended in 1963. Jack Cooper retired in 1961. Before they died, Chicago was known as the black radio capital of the world. Though they never worked together, both of their careers set the stage for the future of radio for African Americans. They used radio for themselves and for the good of the black community they served. Jack L. Cooper was the first, and Al Benson, the old swing master, he was the flashiest. Memphis, Tennessee in the 1940s was like many places across the U.S. It was the era of Jim Crow and the city was segregated. Movie theaters had colored balconies. Most restaurants and hotels didn't serve African Americans. On the radio, there was only a few black voices. But in the fall of 1948, that began to change. On October 25, 1948, Memphis station WDIA put the city's first black DJ on the air, Nat D. Williams. His show became so popular that WDIA switched to an all-black format. It was the first station in the nation to devote all of its programming to African Americans, and its impact was enormous. Hundreds of other radio stations across the U.S. were influenced by WDIA, and black radio spread coast to coast. Nat D. was a popular high school teacher, newspaper columnist, and a talent show host. But the afternoon of his debut, Nat D. recalls being a little bit nervous. And when I got on the air that first, that, that first day, when they stuck the microphone out there for me to start talking, I forgot everything I was supposed to say. So I broke out in a raucous laugh because I was laughing myself out of his picture. <laughs> and uh, of all things, everybody else in the place started laughing too. And that brought back to me what I was supposed to say. <laughs> Top of the morning to you, my friends. From the home of colorful old Beale Street, the place where the blues began in Memphis, Tennessee. In the heart of the rich Mississippi Delta, WGIA, 50,000 watts of goodwill, invites you to join us in asking the man upstairs to smile on us today 
and help us to satisfy that hankering to offer you the best in radio entertainment and service to the finest people in the world, our listeners. <laughs> now, what do you think? When WDIA came on, the day that WDIA came on, everybody was sitting around waiting. Ruby Harding grew up listening to WDIA. And that came on with a laugh. And so that was his trademark. From then on was his laugh. And he started playing music for blacks. And it caught on fast. Everybody listened to it until he went off at sundown. And it was a happy occasion for black people. Putting black programs on radio was a bold step in the South in the late 40s. It was almost an accident that it even happened. Before Nat D made his debut, WDIA played mostly country music, but its ratings were slipping, and the station faced bankruptcy. Bert Ferguson was a co-owner of WDIA. We started a radio station, period. We didn't know what we were doing, really, in a a competitive market, and after a while, it was pretty obvious we weren't going to do much. And I had always thought the black radio, there was an opening for it because there were so many blacks in this part of the country, nobody really servicing their needs just was not done. That that was the beginning of WDIA. Speaking of being bothered, mm. you know, I went across the street and got me a ham sandwich. I told them to toast it. Yeah. They didn't. They didn't but brother, uh-huh. let me tell you what happened. Send it on over here to me. Yeah. It's hot out there. Yeah. It's, and I knew it was hot. Yeah. I thought it could be done. Yeah. I just went to the front door. Oh. Held the sandwich up out there in the front uh-huh. for about five minutes. Yeah. It's toasted. <laughs> <laughs> the personalities on WDIA helped make this station a success. Now, every jock was different. In 1949, one year after Nat D went on the air, WDIA made broadcast history by becoming the first station in the U.S. with an all-black announcing staff. Natalyn Williams is Nat D's daughter. Her daddy used to take her along to work with him. And Natalyn recalls meeting the station's colorful characters. Honeymoon was laid back. He was cool. He was the younger one. And he'd come on and, for your listening pleasure, you know, this is Bob Honeymoon. Garner, that type of thing. He get like that. Aunt Willow, Willow Monroe. She had this little high pitched, like I don't know, affected voice. You know, it was phony. It was totally phony, and it was funny because she didn't know how crazy it sounded. It used to like trip me out because she'd be one person on the air. There was one voice, and then when she'd be at home, there was another because she'd be, honey, bring me a coat at home on the air, ladies. If you want some Coca-Cola, you should go to Montezzi's. They are on sale today. You know, that Rufus bug nuts. I used to love to hear Rufus come on on Saturday with the Hoot and Holler. He'd be getting it, and you know, because his theme song was Hoot and Holler. That was the name of the song. You know, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. And then Rufus would come, ah. You know, he was like, wow, bug nuts. 
is Rufus Thomas. Rufus Thomas is one of WDIA's most popular jocks. He's a legendary comedian and singer. Aha! She cried as she raised her wooden leg and then she sighed. Pink Pussycat Wine. The New York State Wine. I repeat, Pink Pussycat Wine. Man, Rufus Thomas really sold a lot of wine with that sales pitch. But at first, WDIA struggled to keep its advertisers. Most Memphis stores had white owners. And you see, during those segregated times, many whites didn't want to do business with blacks. Now, here's DJ Maurice Hot Rod Hulbert. We were selling to, to white merchants, and uh, the sales manager took me out to a client. It was a furniture store that was going to be broadcast on my station, buying airtime on my program. And the sales manager thought that I should meet the owner, see the store, so that I could talk about the products much better. So he took me out, and when he introduced me, I put my hand out to shake his hand, and he didn't raise his hand. And I looked at my hand, I looked at him, and I reached in my back pocket and pulled out my handkerchief and wiped my hand, put my handkerchief back in my pocket, and stuck my hand out again, and he still didn't didn't shake my hand. So I looked at him, and I didn't say anything, and I just turned and walked away. He bought the time, but my salesman, he turned red as a beat. He was white, you know, and uh, he was embarrassed. And and I was embarrassed and mad, too. I needed this job because I don't want to quit my job because this is something new for black people in radio. And now here I am. I have to talk about this man's product go back on there and talk about this product, and he refused to shake my hand. But I talked about the product and did well. He did business, and some months later, he did shake my hand. It took a while for white business owners to realize that WDIA reached a large black audience with money to spend. One of the station's best salesmen was Brother Theo Bless My Bones Wade. He played gospel. Bless My Bones is remembered by fellow DJ Ford Nelson. Brother Wade was good for jokes, believe it or not. <laughs> he was some kind of a salesman, too. And uh, the, the sponsors would just flock to him. He could sell anything. He could sell baby chickens. He could, he could sell automobiles, furniture, clothing, and you name it. <laughs> Say, you ever had a, you ever had a biscuit baptizing? <laughs> Listen, let Bless My Bones tell you something. Let me tell you about a biscuit baptizing. Here's what you do. You bake your biscuit with Martha White self-rising flour with hot rice. And when the Martha White biscuits come out of the oven, you just grab them up and butter them. You baptize them in butter. Baptize them biscuits in good shape. And, and you talking about eating. You sop your way on to the promised land after the baptizing. You got it? Brother Wade would get on the air and sell more flour, you know, um, a lard, you know, just oil, anything. And blacks would go to buying it. Again, Natalyn Williams. So then you began to have white grocery stores and department stores in different places advertising on DIA to tap this new community, to tap into this new money here. So, you know, wait, wait, wait a minute now. All this time we've been sitting up here waiting on, you know, Miss Daisy. We got to wait on had it made to come out the back of the come out of the kitchen because she's going to the grocery store too. So when it dawned on them, then I think the white community really started to key into WDIA because they knew this is how they could reach another economic base that they didn't realize had been sitting here in Memphis all the time quietly. 
five fickle Frenchmen fretted for 40 frivolous females. They did? Eight apiece? No, man, it's just a tongue twister. Five fickle Frenchmen fretted for 40 frivolous females. Try it. Five fickle women fretted frivolous French males? Well, that's not right. WDIA's funny commercials helped make it a big success. It was the first Memphis station to earn a million dollars. More people tuned their dials to WDIA than any other station in the city. Martha Jean, the Queen Steinberg, was one of the first female DJs on the station. I remember Martha Jean. She was cool. I think it gave somewhat of respect and hope and inspiration to the people. Because before that time, they were just hurtled into corners and... The other radio stations played every music but their music. They'd never heard their name on the radio or never saw their name in the paper. Or no one ever recognized them. At DIA, they could feel akin because somebody recognized them and called their name and told them they were important and planned things where they could be a part of a large family gathering. So from that point of view, I think when we were there, it was the greatest radio station in this nation. Yeah. Close my Music truly did make the station great. Many singers, in fact, got their start at WDIA. Late one night, a skinny blues singer from Mississippi walked through the rain to the studios at WDIA. After I'd heard about this new radio station, an all-black operated station, when I heard about that, I wanted to go there and see what I could do. Bluesman Riley B. King, later known as B.B. King. I saw this disc jockey in the window, and when he wasn't on the air, I knocked on the door and told him that I want to make a record and I want to go on the radio. So he laughed, and then he called the station manager, Mr. Ferguson, one of the owners, and told him my story. I almost have a mental picture of B.B. walking into our little bitty front office on Union Avenue here in Memphis, almost having come out of a rainstorm with water dripping off of him, said he wanted to go on the air. Again, WDIA's co-owner, Bert Ferguson. I never had heard of him. Nobody else had around here. And uh, I said, well, come in here and let's hear you perform. He sang and played. It was pretty obvious that he had the capacity to sing in a way that was captivating. And as fate would have it, they were starting this new product called Pepticon. And my job then was to write a jingle for Pepticon and to advertise it. So I remember my little jingle went, Pepticon, show is good. Pepticon, show is good. Pepticon, show is good. You can get it anywhere in your neighborhood. <laughs> and they hired me that very day, 10 minutes a day from 3.30 to 3.40. And people started to buy it as if it you know, it wasn't going to be anymore. And I didn't find out for many years later why a lot of the church people and elderly people bought it. It was 12% alcohol. <laughs> That's how I really got into it. some of his first songs in WDI studios. Now, he stayed at the station as a DJ for five years. But before leaving to play music full-time, 
The records that B.B. and other jocks spun influenced dozens of musicians who tuned in. Well, I heard you knew Elvis Presley? Hey, let me tell you something. Elvis Presley was a big fan. He once told an interviewer to play along with the radio. That was how I taught myself the chord positions. And that's how he got into it. Well, we're going to rock. We're going to rock. WDIA offered more than just great music. It emphasized community service, and it earned the title Goodwill Station. All of my friends around Greenwood, Mississippi, I want you to stand by. I want you to help me. You know, WDIA got the name of Goodwill Station because we believe in uh, helping our friends and helping our neighbors. Now, listen, I want you to listen to me now. Brother Theo Bless My Bones Wade and other DJs became famous for doing public service spots called Goodwill Announcements. They were the lost and found of the airwaves. And sometimes they were pretty funny. One of our friends just called us a minute ago. He lost his false teeth. He lost his false teeth. Listen, friends. False teeth lost. He was coming from the Liberty Cash Grocery here in Memphis, Tennessee. You know, walking on the ice out there, you know, our temperature is 10 degrees and the streets are covered with ice. And so he's trying to be careful. He took his teeth out of his mouth and put them in his pocket that he might not lose them. I might not fall and get his teeth knocked out. I've been up or mashed up. I know you can't do nothing well with a set of false teeth. Ain't no gold in them. Just, just a set of false teeth. Let's get him back to a man that got no teeth and can't eat. Well, man, he just, you know, he's in a bad shape. So let's help him. I know you will. Okay. Brother Wade could really do announcements that would get to the soul of people. This jockey Robert Honeyboy Thomas. We got some assistance about that because Brother Wade was not laughing about it. He was serious about the man getting his teeth back. Our listeners filled in, gave a certain amount of money, and got the man a brand new pair of false teeth. That was the interest that he had in us. That's why it was hard to break listeners away from WDIA. No one care what other radio station came into town starting up something new. You couldn't budge our listeners from WDIA. If you believe, here is a message from outer space, interpreted by Astrola. Are you a Taurus, a Gemini, a Scorpio, maybe a Sagittarius? Whatever your sign, you'll enjoy WDIA's new feature, DIA Horoscope. Fact or fancy, it's fun to listen to. D.I.A. Horoscope. There was something for everyone on W.D.I.A. Joe Evelyn Grayson remembers laying in her bed listening to the station's advice columnist, Aunt Carrie. You write in about problems that you have, and Aunt Carrie will tell you what to do. <laughs> I know, and she'd read the letters over the air. And one girl wrote in at uh, Dear Aunt Carrie, the fellow that I love, I thought loved me, and but I haven't seen him for many weeks, and I've heard that he's got another girlfriend. What should I do? So Aunt Carrie would tell her, Honey, go and find you somebody else. 
she would have down answers. You know, she wouldn't beat around the bush. She'd tell you what time it was. <laughs> WDIA played a very, very important role in the black community because they mixed entertainment with serving the community. Again, DJ Martha Jean, the Queen Steinberg. At that particular time, no one was interested in the crippled children of Memphis. And WDIA had Goodwill reviews, Starlight reviews, and the money raised would, would buy buses and also pay the driver of the bus to take the black crippled children to the hospitals and to school and back home. So we just did what we thought was best to do, was being the best we could on the radio and then serving the community. WDIA also pioneered community affairs programs. Each Sunday, Nat D. Williams hosted Brown America Speaks. It was one of the first shows in the country to explore racial and political topics. And one afternoon, Maurice Hot Rod Hulbert recalls what happened when he set in for Nat D. Being proud of my blackness, I went into a poem-like thing, and I did it with humility and passion. And I said, uh, I helped you fill your lumber. We, we breastfed your babies, cooked your food ruling powers of this nation. Won't you give me justice now? We helped you build your railroads. We helped you fight your wars. Ruling powers of this nation. Won't you give me justice now? And it went on and on and on. And as I get into now, you can see tears getting into my eyes because I was really feeling that. I was really feeling it. And uh, after it was over, White people called the station and complained. And they complained so badly. I never did that show again. WDIA won national recognition. Now, other radio stations began copying its pioneering format. By the mid-50s, some 600 stations across the U.S. aired black programming for at least part of their broadcast day. Stations in Birmingham, New Orleans, New York, Oakland, Philadelphia, from coast to coast. WDIA influenced them all. It really did live up to being the sensation of the nation. And its popularity continues today, folks. WDIA is still the number one AM station in Memphis, Tennessee. But a whole generation of Memphis listeners still remember earlier times. They finally recall the warm voice and trademark laughter of the city's pioneering black disc jockey, Nat D. Nat D. Williams. <laughs> and now, folks, here we are. Smack dab at the end of another day of broadcasting and right on the tiptoes of still another one. And it has been a day when we at WDIA in Memphis on the Mississippi River have tried to fill your hours with an earful of tunes, the indigo notes of the blues, stemming from the throbbing heart of Beale Street where the blues began. Tunes with a swing, tunes with beauty and deep earthy sentiment, tunes to make you smile and chuckle, and tunes of deep religious fervor. We've told you about some of the best merchandise in the world. We've given you the happenings of the day. Best of all, we've offered you 50,000 watts of goodwill the WDIA way. We did this for you, the WDIA listeners, the finest people in the world. And we want to thank you for being our good friends. 
Now, this is Nat D. Williams speaking for WDIA Incorporated and for the entire staff of the Goodwill Station saying, friends and neighbors, good night and good morning. Black Radio, Telling It Like It Was, was hosted by Lou Rawls and produced for the Smithsonian in 1996. This hour features segments produced by yours truly, Jackie Gales Webb and Lex Gillespie. Our production manager was John Tyler, John Paulson and Matthew Sacchini, post-production engineers. Our EP was Wesley Horner, research by Universal Media, original music by David Ilversacker, Special thanks to Mark Newman, A.J. Parker, the Chicago Historical Society, and Sonic Solutions. The material for the 25th anniversary edition was written and produced by Sierra Spragley Ricks and Genevieve Sponsler, with post-production by Samantha Gatsek. To learn more about the people and radio shows featured in this episode, visit Indiana University's Archives of African American Music and Culture, aaamc.indiana.edu Black Radio Telling It Like It Was was made possible by Major Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the James Smithson Society and the Public Radio International Program Fund whose contributors included the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. WDIA, the Goodwill Station, and before that, Jackie Cooper and Al Benson, the third and fourth installments of the series Black Radio Telling It Like It Was from the winter of 1996 and tonight from the big broadcast and WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. There's a musical anniversary we want to celebrate tonight, and it's not surprising that it's the anniversary of a masterpiece. When two stars, whose careers owed a lot to radio, Duke Ellington and his famous orchestra, and the legendary gospel singer Mahalia Jackson, entered a Hollywood recording studio exactly 65 years ago, you would expect that something very special would emerge, and it did. Recorded for the Columbia label on February 12, 1958, it's part of Duke Ellington's suite, Black, Brown, and Beige, sung by Mahalia Jackson, it's come Sunday.
Duke Ellington and his orchestra with vocalist Mahalia Jackson and Maestro Ellington's Come Sunday, recorded exactly 65 years ago on this date. This is the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kennedy Wright and Kenny Pirog are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Well, we do it before every Valentine's Day. So to honor our own tradition, here's an episode of Let George Do It, starring Johnny Dollar's Bob Bailey, or Robert as he's billed, along with Gunsmoke's William Conrad, or Bill as he's, well, billed. You'll hear why it's appropriate for this week as you listen to the story called The Eight Ball from April 2nd, 1951, the Mutual Don Lee Network, and the series, Let George Do It. Personal notice, danger's my stock and trade. If the job's too tough for you to handle, you got a job for me, George Valentine. Write full details. Company of California, on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and standard stations throughout the West, invites you to Let George Do It. Now, for tonight's story. The Eight Ball, another adventure of George Valentine. Dear Mr. Valentine, there's no finer, no more exclusive little town on the map than Summer Springs. You're not selling them real estate, Nielsen. I'm writing this letter, Big, be quiet. Shut the door, will you, Matt? Sure, Nielsen. Boys are a little noisy. Guess the luncheon's broke up. <laughs> Civic League. Just a lot of talk. None of them will ever do anything but the three of us. Always away, isn't it? I don't know. You've only written one sentence. Shut up, Vic. And summer, spring. Um, perhaps you visited the hotel here yourself, Mr. Valentine. But at least it's a sure thing you've seen the outrageous charges the federal grand jury and city newspapers have been making about us. Uh, now, now, wait a minute, Nielsen. I'm still not so sure this is the right way to go at this. Here, here. The mayor speaks. Well, now, Vic, you're a lawyer. Would you hire a man you've never seen to investigate your own backyard? Now, there's a man I know, a fine detective, who would be only too glad to come down fine here. Fine detective you... like that police force of yours, I suppose. Can't see what's under their own noses. Well, I'm the responsible one, and it seems to me that Damn I should that wall, be... his back's to the wall, and his head is all full of surmises. Now, see You've here, You've got to you... stop being cautious sometime, Emmett. In my bank, I make decisions, and I make them fast. Yes, but I... I agree that... with Nielsen, Emmett. If we don't get an outside investigator quick, the grand jury will do it. I say let's us find out first. Clean up our own town. <laughs> Objections overruled. Now we're getting someplace. Mr. Valentine, I'm enclosing railroad tickets. A public-spirited group of which I am the head. Three of us. Don't we sound fancy, though? Expects your immediate presence. It has been alleged that Summer Springs is being used as the center of payoffs for the big city collection rackets. 
that our fair town has a jackal in its midst. And it's your job to find him. There. I do it. Now we'll get some action. I'll mail this right now. Only, see here, both of you. Nobody knows about this but the three of us. Remember, nobody else knows about Valentine. They made a reservation for me at the Summer Springs Hotel, Brooks, so you can phone me up there. George, why can't I go with you? Just because they don't expect Look, me to it's come... it's a five-alarm fire all set to go off, and you know it. Summer Springs is going to be hotter than but the... But nobody floor. knows about you, just the men who rode. Angel, I'm looking for a guy who poses as respectable, a big-timer who hasn't been identified. And if you were there, I wouldn't be able to duck as fast. But there's nothing dangerous if nobody knows. Hey, wait, Mr. Valentine. Huh? Yeah? Well, the baggage man pointed you out. Yeah? I need your help. I need you a lot. I got a case for you. Sorry, I'm tied up on one. My, uh, grandmother's dead. Oh, that's too bad. My grandfather killed her. Used an axe. What? I'm not interested. George. You see, my aunt's insane and what happened... I doubt if the... you ever had a grandmother, gorilla boy, or even a mother. Now, say it in English and fast, because I'm not going to miss that train. I got a thousand bucks here for you to take my case. I could think of one. Uh-huh. You mean if I don't take the train? I don't mind. I could tell it to you on the way to Summer Springs. That's where you think I'm going? No, just where you think you're going. So somebody else does know. Hey, Buster, get out of my way before uh, I miss Stay that. away, I'm telling you. Oh, no, you George, don't. George, look out! Yeah, yeah, easy. We're attracting attention. A corpse would attract more. Who hired you? A thousand bucks. Trip ain't necessary. Stay home. Okay. Okay, maybe you're right, mister. Too late now, anyway. There she goes. It's a sunny kind of a trip. You wouldn't have enjoyed it. Uh-huh. Shall we go count the money? Sure. My name's Lemuel. You're a smart guy. I thought you'd see the light. Yeah. I hope you do. So you get to go after all, Angel. Yeah, you get to drop me off in Summer Springs yourself. From the car. Not much of a hotel, is it? For a fancy town like this, no more potted palms than usual. Do I get to come in with you? Sure, sure. Lemuel kept me off the train, didn't he? Okay, then the more casual, the better. You mean whoever hired him won't be expecting you to show up now? I mean, Lemuel isn't in condition to report for a while. I do not care what the union says about chambermaids. I have an opinion, too, you know. Have you been a clerk for 12 years? Well, have you? Oh, oh, I'm so sorry, sir. Be just a moment. Oh, no, no, no. Finish the phone call. Now, listen, I don't care how many chambermaids you've known. Do you run a laundry service or a... or? A... Oh, hold on, will you? I'm so sorry. Now, what was it? George Valentine. I've got a reservation. No, I won't call the manager. He doesn't live here. Uh, what was the name, sir? George Valentine. Oh, let me see. Uh, yeah. Yes, he's in his room. What? At 350,000, I told you. Not 340,000. Oh, for heaven's sake, hang on, will you? What's the matter? Well, I asked... If... Oh, yes, 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 it was George Valentine you asked for, wasn't it? Well, he just checked in a few moments ago. Yes, he's in his room. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. It's room 419. It's elevated to the right. Um, but... Oh, uh, thanks a lot, Buster. Come on, Angel. You see, my dear fellow, if the chambermaids don't count the towels... Every... 
Who is it, George? If somebody took your oh, room... Oh, I don't know, Brooksy. Looks like they're still one step ahead of us, whoever they are. It's essential Emil couldn't have revived in time. Well, whoever the impersonator is in there, he doesn't seem to answer very fast. Come on. Of course he's dead. Hey, shut that door. There's no gun. I don't shut see the gun. Shut the door, will you? Uh, he's shot, all right. George, he's about your same bill. Huh? Around the same age. Yeah. There's a briefcase over here under the bed. It's a sample case, isn't it? The kind salesmen carry? Neckties. Nothing but neckties. Look, George, there's a key on the floor next to it. Yeah, let me see. Yeah, to another room, 631. Hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Card in his wallet. Sure, of course. Harold Stark, Sure Silk Tie Company from Salt Lake City. Necktie salesman. Well, he suppose he came in on the train tonight, George. Uh-huh, yeah, sure. Single guy looking generally my type. You mean suppose he got picked up by somebody watching the hotel here, somebody expecting me. So they kill him and put him in your room? Wait a minute, room? wait a minute. Let it ring. We ought to talk to the clerk, to the bellboys. Now, listen, whoever shot this guy did it and ran. Okay, then, so will we. George, that's crazy. Is it? I was hired to find out who a big-time collection man is in this town, right? Only whoever it is got one jump ahead of us. I can't even start working until I get out from behind the eight ball, can I? Oh, George, that phone, it keeps ringing. Somebody's going to hear it. What are you doing? I'm putting my wallet, my own wallet, on the body. What do you think? No. You take this, guys. Go back to that driving on the edge of town. Run a fast telephone check on him. Harold Stark, Salt Lake City. The clerk knows we're here. He'll keep ringing. We'd like to grab the neckties. We'll dump them in the alley. And I'll be out from behind the eight ball if I'm dead, won't I? George. I'll be free to find out those guys who hired me. So come on, give the police a chance to find the body of George Valentine. Yes, come in, Mr. Uh, uh, Valentine, I told you. Your name is Nielsen, isn't it? You sent for me, didn't you? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, of course. Well, don't look like a ghost, like you're scared. What do you want with me? What's that? Why do you keep your hand in your pocket? Because I want a cigarette. Look, see? Now all I want is a little talk, Mr. Nielsen, with you and Mr. Vickery and Emmett Wall, the mayor. You know all of our names. Well, sure, of course. Here's the letter you wrote me. Oh, <laughs> hey, I'm beginning to get this. Have you just had a phone call or something? Yes, I have, as a matter of fact, from Vickery. He happened to be at police court. For once, they work fast in this town. A patrolman has reported the murder of George Valentine. <laughs> okay, sit down. I'll explain if you will. I have nothing to... Buster, I'll use your phone. Prove it to you. The police here in the city. I know you've never seen my face, but they can identify my voice for you. Here, let me have it. No, no. Hello? George? Oh, yeah. What'd you find out, Brooksy? I found out that you're crazy. Absolutely crazy. What? Darling, I tried to contact those people in Salt Lake, but I can't. I mean, I got the company all right, but nothing about Harold Starr. Why not? They've never even heard of him. Nobody by that name has ever sold neckties. Don't you see what you've done? Throw away that wallet, George. The man who was killed was a phony. You can't be somebody that doesn't exist. All right. I believe you. I agree you're Valentine. Then you realize how fast I gotta work, Nielsen. I told you what Miss Brooks said. The body was a plant of some kind. This thing gets deeper every minute. And you haven't even started your investigation. Whoever the man is I'm after is calling the shots in advance. And you claimed only three of you knew about me. Yes, yes, I understand. You think it's one of us. 
But I'm afraid it doesn't make much difference if I do help you now. What do you mean by that? Well, Mr. Valentine, I'm not a cowardly man, but I'll admit, when you knocked on the door... Yeah, sure, you were scared to death. But what's that got to Valentine, do with... Valentine, I don't think you realize yet just how far behind that eight ball you are. That same patrolman who found the body also saw a man and woman throw away a briefcase in an alley. Huh? You and Miss Brooks, there was identification with the neckties. At the door just now, I thought you were the man every policeman in town is looking for. Harold Stark. He doesn't exist, you say? <laughs> His description is yours. And you know who you are? Never mind, never mind. I get it. I dug my own grave, didn't I? Yeah. I killed George Valentine. Tonight's adventure of George Valentine. It's quite simple. Three men want you to find out who's been using the little town of Summer Springs as collection headquarters for the city rackets. They want you to do this before the federal grand jury moves in. Well, if your name is George Valentine, you think this might be an interesting case. If you could ever get to work on it. Yes, the trouble so far is in getting out from behind the eight ball because... As matters now stand, you're wanted by the police for murdering yourself. Well, Valentine, for once it seems the police wasted no time discovering a mistake. That George Valentine was not killed. Well, that's nice to know. You mean they re-identified that body I found? Clarence Prell, up-and-coming accountant. His name's been mixed up in this thing already. He's been making a tremendous amount of money the past few years. It's just possible... Our big shot is already dead. Well, why would this man, this accountant, have the identification of Harold Stark on him? Who killed him? Who put it there? Who put him there in my hotel room? Now, listen to me, Valentine. You can get to work now. You're off the hook. They know it's not your body. Now, look, I've been in trouble because it wasn't kept secret that you three were hiring me. Is that right? Oh, there you go again. We're honest. Stupid? Yes, but honest. None of us are mixed up in any rackets. Okay, okay, skip it. But even if the big shot isn't one of you... You're now in the way, aren't you? What? Well, maybe I'm wanted by the police, but if the killer with strong boys knows about me, he also then knows about you. Yeah. Lock your doors tonight. Shh. Turn out those lights. Huh? The car just stopped out there. I could see the lights blinking. <laughs> Take it easy, Nielsen. It's only Miss Brooks. I'll see you later. Sometimes I think you're the eight ball. Angel, the heat's on the big shot, whoever he is, a lot more than it's on me. Come on, we're going in here. Where, the drugstore? Yeah. Got a nickel in your purse? Yeah. Why don't you go straight to the mayor himself? Brooksy, I need a little more time to work alone. You're going to give it to me. What? The mayor's got his own ideas. I've got mine. But if, if I don't work fast, a lot of people are liable to get hurt. This... Hello, operator. I want a policeman. This Mr. Rex will do anything to cover his tracks before a full investigation... George, what on earth are you doing? Hey, police, look. I just heard that thing on the radio. I, I mean that description of that guy and that girl, that, that Harold Stark with the girl who was dressed... 
Well, slow down. How can I? I just seen it. A girl having a soda. Hey, what's the name here? Oh, yeah. Kleshima's Drugstore. She's wearing you a, rat. a brown coat. Hey, you better down. come and get it quick. George Valentine of At all the dirty tricks. At least you won't get hurt, Angel. Tell him to look for me any place but the Summer Springs Hotel Room 631. Now, you play eight ball for a while. Tell they let anybody in. I thought I knocked you out of the picture before once. We're even. I didn't hit you hard enough either. Yeah, you're out of condition, Buster. That's bad. You kill that guy? I was with you and another Tom. Don't talk so long. All right, all right. Hey, wait a minute. What are you trying to... Hey, get out of my pocket. What's the idea? There's a gun in your stomach. Don't argue. Well, why put a gun in my pocket, too? It's empty. Don't get your hopes up. Be quiet. Another wallet, too. If you think you can frame me for killing this guy, whoever he is, you're crazy. I'm not. Cops don't kill cops. What? Can't you tell Flatfeet when you see him his name's Harold Stark? An eye that got shot. Like you're gonna be. Oh, so that's it. Yeah, sure, there is a Stark, a detective. Came to town acting like a necktie salesman, huh? Ouch. Just let me get in that chair, will you? Sure. You're fixed. You got everything. Wait a minute. Two guns. Two guns I got in my pocket. That's a lot. There's two men dead out there. You're a bright boy, a real up-and-coming eye. Dead eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. The real Stark dead in this room. That accountant named Prell dead in my room. So come on, bright boy, get on your feet. Yeah, sure. Look out. Get away from that. Hello, anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's better. Here now, talk to the wire. Dead like you are. Now, on your feet, like I said. Hey, listen. The people next door, they've stopped talking. Yeah, they heard me. Look, strong brain, you're a sucker. What do you work for? I didn't hear nothing. Two guys have been murdered. First the detective here, then Prell. Somebody's going to swing for it. Now, shut up, like I said. Hey, what's going on there? Can people have no privacy? You're listening. That's what you're doing. Oh, for the love of... Walk, will you? Go on the door. All right, all right. Plenty of standing room. Don't shove. Well, what are you listening to? You think you hear something or something? Of all the mirrors. Now out the door. Okay, okay. Just thought you might not want the guy who's coming down the hall to see you. What? Oh, it's only the desk clerk. Get back in there. What's going on here? What's going on? Everything! What do you think you're doing? Come on, get out of the way. Fast. Let go of me. Really? Down here, will you? 
Okay, he's not going to shoot. Shoot? What kind of a disturbance is this? This is not the sort of hotel you get... Wait a minute. I've seen you before. Yeah, you're the guy who gave out my description, I guess. What? No, no, I didn't give any description. Oh, you're the laundry man. Oh, no, no, that's what I was talking about. I remember you're the... Oh. oh. Well, see here, there was a mix-up Come on, room. skip it. Just show me the fastest way out. Don't get that gun away from that me. That big man in there, was there anybody with him when he came into the hotel? What? Well, no, no. Yes, I, I mean, yes. Uh, uh, there are several men down the lobby. I, I don't know who they are. You're wanted by the police. That, that's all I know. The back stairs, then. Where are they? Come on. I won't help a criminal. Come on, don't argue, friend. Then, all right. Here, here, here duck in here. Uh, there, there are several policemen in the hotel, too. There, there are cars at the alley entrance. You're going to find me a way out, so stop shaking. I didn't kill anybody. The police don't think I did. Why not? Now, look, you. I'm just a guy behind the eight ball, see? There's a big crook in your town, Clarence Prell. You know him? No. An accountant. Man in a nice spot to take payoffs coming in from the city. But Prell is dead, so he's not the crook. What? Oh, for heaven's Find sake. Find me a way out of here or people will be wrong. They'll think he was the crook. They'll say he killed a detective named Harold Stark who was on his trail. Let them say what they want. I... They'll say I killed Prell, maybe in self-defense. But I was real smart and collected all the evidence, including the guns. Then poor Valentine, he was on his way to get himself out of trouble with the police when something happened to him. You're mad. You're worse than the laundry people. Now look, Buster, I'm telling you all this so you'll help. It's a frame-up, see? To get rid of two private detectives and take the heat off by making Prell look like the big shot. A triple play. Here we are. Here. Give me a hand with the window. Huh? Okay. Only six stories up. I forgot my umbrella. I can't jump, Buster. No, 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 no. Look. Out there, you see? Huh? To the side. It's an old fire escape. It hasn't been used since we built the new wing. But it comes down in the service yard. This is the side street. Yeah? You... Well, go on. How much help do you need? Oh, there's no one down there. Here, you see? Yeah. Yeah, sure, I see. Uh-huh. little rusty, though, isn't it? Well, what do you expect? A red carpet? I expect you to go first. Lead the way. What? It just occurred to me it's not so bad being behind an eight ball. If you've got the cue in your hand. Mr. Valentine, for the love... Remember the gun, Buster. Lead the way. Now, tell me. Why do you call me Valentine? Why not Prell or Stark? Or any of the other names thrown around tonight? Well, well, back there, Lemuel called you Valentine. How do you know his name? Well, I'm a hotel clerk. I, I see lots of people. And that switchover of rooms today. I don't see how anybody could have done it but the hotel clerk himself. Well, but... What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> Human nature. How you and your boy, Lemuel, found out about my coming here. How I? An accountant sees lots of people, sure. But a hotel clerk sees a lot more. Now, who's in a better spot to receive payoff deliveries on the QT than the man behind the desk? I'm going back. You're going nowhere. Now, listen, Buster. It had to either be one of my three clients or you. What? Yeah, so take human nature again. It couldn't be one of them, or why get me in it? But they did write the letter right after a Civic League luncheon. Uh, what do you mean... Human nature. I mean how people mail letters in hotels. In a hotel, you just hand the letter to the clerk to mail, don't you? Get out of my oh, way. No, you don't. I'm going back. What's the matter? Don't these rusty stairs go on down there? Do they just fall off in the dark someplace? That's you who's going to fall off in the dark. Not even afraid of the gun, are you? You already know it's not loaded. 
Just evidence to be found on the patsy. Look out. Don't. This is where you get racked up, eight ball. How did you get off that fire escape? It was rusty. You would have fallen through. That's why he led you out there. What he expected hey, you to do... Hey, 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 hey. Slow down, will you? How'd you get out of jail, Angel? Oh, George, please. I want to understand. Oh, he was a guy, all right. The hotel clerk. Yeah, he kept the job so nobody would ever guess, as well as because it was such a perfect spot for payoffs. He knew the heat was on when he heard I was coming, and Lemuel couldn't stop me. He had me all set for a double fancy frame. But that other detective... Well, the mayor said he wanted to handle things himself, didn't he? Did he know a man he wanted to hire? Harold Stark. Posing as a necktie salesman. Yeah, and that accountant had been working with a clerk on the rackets, so he figured he'd make him fall guy. Strictly from desperation, Angel. But it all might have worked. But you would have died accidentally, fallen and been killed, and that would have been the end of it. Mm-hmm. Only how on earth, after you knocked him out, how did you get him off the fire escape? <laughs> how did you get out of jail? Well, you saw him. That big, good-looking policeman. So what? You said you didn't tell him anything. No. Well? (laughs) He was very sweet. Well, he... I mean, after a while, there was no reason to hold me. In jail, I mean. Why, Brooksy. And... Well, why should I tell you if you won't tell me? (laughs) Good night, Georgie. Tonight's adventure of George Valentine has been brought to you by Standard Oil Company of California on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and standard stations throughout the West. Robert Bailey is starred as George, with Virginia Gregg as Brooksy. Let George Do It is written by David Victor and Jackson Gillis and directed by Don Clark. Bill Conrad was heard as Lemuel, Bob Jellison as the clerk, Herb Butterfield as Nielsen, Will Wright as Vickery, and Stanley Farrar as Wall. Music is composed and presented by Eddie Dunstetter, your announcer, John Heaston. Listen again next week, same time, same station, to Let George Do It. Let George Do It is heard overseas through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. The Eight Ball, an episode of Let George Do It from the spring of 1951 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. To close our show tonight, we've got a twofer. To celebrate African American History Month, it's an episode of Destination Freedom. And in time for Valentine's Day, it's a famous episode narrated by the voice of the human heart. A beautiful conceit by the show's creator, Richard Durham. Broadcast August 8, 1948, by NBC and station WMAQ in Chicago, it's the episode called The Heart of George Cotton from the series Destination Freedom. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom.
my Lord, and be free. Destination Freedom. The Chicago Defender and Station WMAQ bring you Destination Freedom, a new radio series dramatizing the great democratic traditions of the Negro people, interwoven in the pageant of history and a part of America's own Destination Freedom. Today, Destination Freedom tells the unique story of Dr. Ulysses Grant Daly and of Dr. Daniel Williams among the first surgeons to perform successful sutures on the human heart in a chapter entitled, The Heart of George Cotton. I am the human heart. I am the spirit's rhythm. I am a hollow bag the size of your fist. I live in a cavity between two lungs. I am the timekeeper of human life. Fair, impartial, equal to Turk or Tartar, Roman, Greek, Ethiop, Hebrew. I am old. I circulated blood for Cro-Magnons, Neanderthals, Rhodesians. And if in men, I have been the lion and the lamb, the love and the hate. If in men, the good is off interred with their bones, so let it be with my blood. So let it be in my story of the men who mastered me, who learn the laws of my veins and lobes, arteries and oracles, who timed my twisting to planet precision, who fought to heal me whenever I was ripped and split, outstretched on a table in the breast of a dying man. Doctor, that's my heart beating like a drum in my ears. It's loud. So loud. Can't you hear it? He's Mr. Moving, Dr. Daly. But I can't hear him. His heart must be beating. But my stethoscope hardly picks up the sound. Oh, doctor. Can't you hear it yet? Can't you? How long have you been here? The ambulance just brought him in. I called you right away. You checked his pulse, respiration temperature. Pulse rapid, 30, 130. Respiration, 30. Temperature, 105. Oh, good Lord. They'd only brought him in sooner. This, this wound goes down to... Uh, I, oh, wait. I think I found where. Doctor, I'm trying to tell you. It happened the night I got paid. I went out to sit on the beach to watch the sun rise. Some men came out, wanted my money. I hit one, 
Then something hit my chest, dipped in like a pin. I, uh, His heart's weakening. There's the needle. Adrenaline quick. Right here, doctor. Let it go, let it go. That'll hold it a while. His heart's been hit. Only one thing we can do. There's nothing you can do. Nothing. Don't let him stir, nurse. Call the emergency staff into the operating room. Find his blood type. Get the plasma ready. His heart's split leaking badly. He'll die if he can't sew it up. We've got to operate. No. You can't operate on my heart. Not on my heart. There's one chance in a thousand. If we take it, he may live. No. I'll die. You don't fool me. I'll never see the sun rise again. I know it. You hear that, doctor? I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Yes. I am the heart, and I speak to you, doctor. You scrubbing your arms while red sand drips down an hourglass, dusting your hands with powder, flexing your fingers with a rubber glove. Your heart steady. Your mind 40 years away from a town in Texas when you were 18, when your fingers rolled over the keys of a big piano. I've told you not to play that piano. My wife's dead. Let her music rest. Yes, sir. I... I didn't expect you'd come in, sir. If it's still music you want to learn, we can stop your medical lessons. Oh, no. I've given up music. I was just practicing to... Put your fingers to a better use than waking up a dead woman. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Excuse my gruffness. I had a hard day at the hospital, and I can't get her out of my head. Oh, I'm tired. I'm so tired. I knew you'd be. I finished marking the class papers for you. Would you want to look them over? Yes, yes. What are they? Right here, sir. The final examinations from your surgery students. I've checked them over. Here, Doctor. Mm. Yeah. Good, good, good. You've got a fine head on you, boy. Even if you are over-curious. <laughs> excellent, excellent. What would the white supremacists in this town say if they knew I've got a Negro boy... Not even allowed to enter the medical school, marking my class papers. <laughs> and the boy named after that Yankee, Ulysses Grant, on top of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this one's marked right. Uh, here's an odd one, Doctor. Yes? What's odd about it? Well, I, I didn't know how to mark it. This student thinks it's possible to sew up the human heart when the fibers are cut. He thinks you can take the needle and... Operate on the human heart? 
He's crazy. He drew a diagram, sir. He thinks that the pericardial sac can be reached before it... I said he's crazy. It can't be done. If it could, wouldn't I have saved her? Didn't I try it after she stabbed herself? Didn't I try it? Yes, doctor. You did. Huh? Not just me. But doctors everywhere. In Germany, Italy, France, Switzerland. All tried for years and failed. It can't be done. Don't you see that? I I see it, sir. How shall I mark the paper? Zero, zero. Just talking of it makes me hear the way her heart beat that night. I wish to forget it. Daly, look. You've got nimble fingers and a good head. You know about all I can teach you here. You go north, beat the race quota, get into a medical school. Daly, we can heal the kidney, the bladder, the stomach, nigh everything in the body except a human heart. Like the poet said, the heart's a lonely hunter. And when it's wounded, there's not a chance in a million to heal it. Not a chance in a million. I don't have a chance in a million. Do I, Doctor? Go on. Tell me the truth. I'll never see the sunrise again. Everything's ready, Dr. Daly. Dr. Shaw, Dr. Hasbrock, Dr. Roberts assisting. Good. Let them look this way. We cut a window in the chest wall above the heart. A half circle incision this way. Every move counts. We can't afford a single slip. Ness, Gather. Yes, Doctor. Cramps. Here, Doctor. Okay. Yes, Doctor. Sponge. Yes, Doctor. Here, Doctor. A single slip, and I stopped. To you, I speak. I... With your body bent over a table Wait. under the glare of a white light, concentrated on a six-inch half circle, your mind following the meaning of the words you spoke decades Wait. back in a Wait. college hall when you took an ancient oath. Repeat after me. I, Ulysses Grant Daly. I, Ulysses Grant Daly. Swear by Apollo Physician, by Esculapius, by Help, by Panacea, and by all the gods and goddesses. Swear by Apollo Physician, by Esculapius, by Help, by Panacea, and all the gods and goddesses. Making them my witnesses that I will carry out this oath and this indenture. Making them my witnesses that I will carry out this oath and this indenture. To use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. To use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. In whatever house I enter, I shall enter to help the sick, and I shall abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm. 
He took an oath and carried it out to the letter. And so he went out to heal the heartbeats of the world, to look into hospitals across the country, and to knock on any door to enter the house of the sick. Who are you? What do you want? I'm Dr. Daly, ma'am. I'm over at the hospital. They told me your husband had an accident on the job. Shaft hit his chest. Did they tell you that there's no hope for him? Did they tell you none of the doctors could do anything? They sent me on. Go back where you come from. Let my husband die in peace. Please. Let me see. If there's a chance. There's no chance. Now go. Please. Come in, then. He's lying on the pallet. Over there. Thank you. Would you hold my back? Let me get the stethoscope. There. They were right. His eyes. Pupils dilated. It's no use, I said. There is use. Let me take him to the hospital. Let me try. If we get him there in time, we can wait quick, very quickly. Enough. What can you do that the Savior can't do? I don't know, ma'am. All I know is that hundreds, thousands of men die this way. Well, that must be some way. Some way of patching up their hearts. I know. I'm a young doctor, very young. But there must be a way of helping the heart to beat, even when the cords are cut. I'll find that way, ma'am. I'll find that way. You went across the sea, learning my laws, in Paris, in Rome. Standing by under the white lights, while I lay stretched out upon a table, watching masters try to heal me in Paris. Son peau devient plus en plus fibreuse, Docteur Daly. Infirmière, avez-vous dressé la transfusion? Oui, Docteur. Des crampons. Encore. Oui, Docteur. Son cœur commence à s'évanouir. L'adrénaline, la guille, vite. C'est prêt. Son cœur devient plus faible. Trouvez une veine et passez-moi l'adrénaline tout de suite. Je vois maintenant, c'est fini. C'est fini, c'est trop tard. La palpitation cesse. Nous y étions très loin. Vous pouvez voir vous-même, docteur Daly, c'est impossible. Impossible. Confiteor Deo Omnipotenti, Beate Maria Semper Virgini, Beato Michaele Arcangelo, Beato Ioanne Battiste, Santis Apostolis, Petro Oragata. Siamo quasi al cuore. Infermiera, incastri. Sì, dottore. Spero che possiamo giungere il cuore a tempo. È molto debole. La spugna adesso. Eccola, dottore. Ci siamo. Ecco il cuore. Ora un lago, infermiera. Quello lungo. Sì, dottore. Bene. Vediamo se posso cucirlo in azzi. E cade insieme. Sì, dottore. Santos Apostolos, Petro e Paolo, Omne Santos e Papa Orale, Prodi Adominum Deum Nostro. Dottore! Amen. Yes, in a cottage in Milan I stopped. Everywhere I stopped when I was wounded. 
and he went to Berlin to learn more, to work. While on the dark street in Chicago, other men went to work on me. I was in George Cotton. I was walking home with my wife. George. Yeah? Yeah, Mabel? Don't look now, but two men back there fine. Ah, you're just uneasy because it's dark along here. Every night we come by here, it's always the same old story. George, I don't look now, but two men... George, they're coming up here. They're running this way. Look. Hey, you two, hold up there. Don't run. I'm going to throw a bullet in your back. Uh, Put up your hands. uh, What's this? Hey, you take your hands off me. George, don't. He's got a knife. And I got my fish. Take you, smart guy. George, watch out. Watch out. (laughs) George. George, he stabbed you. Help. Shut up. Shut up. Before the cops come. Oh. Well, go on. What are you waiting for? He, he looks like he's dead. No, it's that shocking. I oh. only stabbed him in the heart. You're oh. too quick with that knife. I told you. Rifle his pockets and stop preaching. Oh. I can't hold this woman oh. all night. Okay, let's be okay. Oh, of all the lousy luck. Ten bucks is all he had. You're lying. No, Lefty, honest. Across my heart. I'll cut out your heart. Come across. Honest, Lefty, you know me. I wouldn't lie to you. Shut up, or shut up. Well, I'll be dogged. Two more dead presidents stuck in my hand. What do you know about that? I know you're a liar. So we got to get out of here. What do we do with the old lady? She knows what's good for us. She'll keep quiet. Take the old man to the morgue. There's a real good sawbones up at the hospital there, lady. Doc Dan Williams. He helped me Stop when I... You fool and pick up your feet. Huh? Okay. Get going. Oh, George. George. You're not dead. Oh, George, no. I can still hear your heart. A little, just a little. It's still beating. Oh, Lord, let it keep on till I can get into the hospital. Let it keep beating until I can get a doctor. Somewhere, somewhere there must be a doctor who can help you. There must be one somewhere. der deutschen Herzgesellschaftswillen möchte ich meine amerikanischen Kollegen willkommen heißen. Meine Herren, Sie sind alle frei, Ihre Untersuchungen in Berlin und anderswo in Deutschland fortzusetzen. Meine Herren, ich danke Ihnen. Or, as you say in English, I welcome you doctors to Berlin to do your research on heart surgery. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Gerhardt. Yeah, you're chief of the heart specialists here, I understand. We'd like to hear of your work. Why, I I wanted to ask you, I heard that in America you have had successful heart operations. Successful? You hear that? <laughs> <laughs> sure, we've had plenty successful heart operations, Professor. Only the patients died. <laughs> oh, well, now I... <laughs> Professor, uh, Professor, I understand you German doctors are coming pretty close to finding a way to suture the heart. Is that right? Well, I was about to say it has been done. Well, I'd sure like to study under the man who's done that. Oh, I, I did not mean here. I meant in America. I read that in Chicago. Chicago. I forgot. Herr Doctors, there is an American doctor in the next room. He's on the staff of Eichelberger Clinic. I invented, I invited him over here to join us. Is that right? Uh, we'd be delighted to have him, Professor. Well, the more the merrier. Maybe he'd like to join the society. 
Bring him in. Sure. I think uh, uh, we have no I think he's just in the other room. Just in here. Here, here, Herr Doctor, this is Dr. Daly. Good evening, gentlemen. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. The professor said some of my fellow countrymen wanted me to join them. Yeah, yeah, Herr Doctor. Here, sit here by Dr. Martin. Just a minute, Professor. I I think you've brought your friend to the wrong place. Wrong place? This society is for doctors. Well, he, he is a doctor. He's not a white doctor, Professor. The society accepts only white doctors. Well, is not a doctor a doctor? Can't you understand? Well, I... I never heard of such a thing. I'll, I'll explain it to you, Professor. He means, insofar as his society is concerned, what science proves about the equality of peoples just make believe. He believes there's a master race, and he belongs to it. His field is for the few, not the many. He has a disease harder to cure than a heart wound. I'll join you in class here, Professor, in the morning. This is outrageous. But I tell you, he's one of the best doctors in Berlin. I have noticed his work. Well, didn't you notice his color? Color? Yeah. Yeah, I did. He is the same color as the man I was going to tell you about in America, Dr. Daniel Williams. Uh, the news just come over the wire. Two weeks ago, July 10th, 1893, Dr. Williams completed one of the first successful operations on the human heart. The patient was George Cotton. And her doctors, the patient lived. Yes, daily, the patient lived. George Cotton got up and walked in two weeks. So... You want to work as my assistant. What can I teach you you don't already know but this? Maybe someday you'll have cases exactly like mine. This cotton. They brought him in one night, stabbed by thugs. His heart struggling to beat. At first it was so faint the stethoscope couldn't pick it up. I searched and I found it. I tell you, there may be sounds more beautiful than a human heartbeat, but I've never heard them. I took him into Providence Hospital, two in the morning. Uh, no time for a big staff, fancy equipment. I had to work fast. Then, with these hands, I took out his heart and stitched it six times. I did it for one patient, and I did it for another. And this I learned. Now, follow this closely. Yes, Dr. Williams. This heart, this human heart, is not just a delicate thing. But it's all so tough and strong. It'll stand just so much pressure when you're going to handle it. It's the little things that you do that'll make the difference between life and death. Now, you remember this when you're calling for your scalpels, sponges, sutures, clamps. You cannot give the patient much anesthesia. It's too weak to stand it to do that. You can have his eyes open, watching and waiting. Cut your window over the fourth rib and tie off the vessels. When you lift the window, you'll see the heart. It's like a slippery fish. It rises, twists, and struggles like it's trying to break free. 
take the stitches in between the heartbeats. Okay. And if the stitches hold back the flow, you've got a chance. But remember, keep in rhythm with a heartbeat. Keep the rhythm. Never break that rhythm. Now, it's ready. We'll lift up the window. Steady. Easy now. Easy. Doctor, what are you taking off me? Doctor. There. It's off. The heart. Look at it. Try twist. Doctor. Oh, doctor. Keep checking his respiration. Transfusion ready. It's on the rack, doctor. I, I feel so, so weak, doctor. So weak. Pressure. He, he's gasping. He's weak. Got to get on. Ready to lift the heart. Lift it out of the body. Too much pressure. Keep rhythm with the heartbeat. Doctor, everything's going wrong. Wrong. A little more. There. The heart's out. Now, to hold it in my left hand, blood leaking out. Not much time. There's needle, curved needle. Right here. Fine silk. It's threaded. Ready. It's gone down. His heart's hardly beating. Adrenaline, quick, adrenaline. I've got it, doctor. Locate a vein in his arm, hurry. I'm I'm trying to, doctor. But his nerves have collapsed. I can't find it. Take the scalpel, cut down. Make a cut down. Take one. I've got it, doctor. Shoot it in. Good. Transfusion handy. Yes, Doctor. Let the blood flow into him. Yeah. It's holding. Give him more. Let it go free. It's going in. The beat's picking up. Good. Good. Distant. Cleaned incision. Single sulfur. Take off the clamp. Throw up the vessel. We've won. You'll make it. And the human heart, a hollow bag the size of your fist. When I was wounded, these are some of the men who first healed my wounds. You have 
have just heard Destination Freedom's dramatization of the story of Dr. Ulysses Grant Saley and Dr. Daniel Williams, among the first of the world surgeons to devise a successful method for heart sutures. Destination Freedom is Richard by, written by Richard Durham and produced under the direction of Homer Heck. Dr. Bailey was played by Fred Pinkard. Others were Larry Alexander, Oscar Brown Jr., Donald Gallagher, Janice Kingslow, Kurt Kupfer, William Nix, Tony Parrish, Arthur Peterson, and Dorothy Van Zandt. Greg Pascal was a singer. The special music was written by Emil Soderstrom and was played by Elwin Owen and Bobby Christian. This is Charles Chan inviting you to be with us again next week for another in our series of The Negro in Democracy, Destination Freedom. This is WMAQ, NBC in Chicago. Destination Freedom, The Heart of George Cotton, an episode from the summer of 1948. It brings us almost to the end of this edition of the big broadcast. We're going to go out, as we usually do at this time of year, with a performance of Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart's My Funny Valentine. This time, sung by the Divine One, Ms. Sarah Vaughan, with Richard Heyman and his orchestra in a New York studio 69 years ago this weekend for Mercury Records. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Kennedy Wright, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. Yeah.
Yeah.